Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer space. space. In this episode, we'll be looking at TFOS 996 to 1009. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 996 Determination, written by Weird Spectre C-2560-CE Ashtai? Asked the stout mechanic, bronze shivering. Worked with them, yes. Tentacles are good at all that finicky stuff. Fixing machinery, that sort of thing. She turned, cranking a valve on the exposed reaction console system of the shuttle that she was repairing, humming quietly. Oh yes, good work ethic, and all. She turned back. Good to work for, too. Pay generously, tip even more so. Ships tend to be a lot prettier than most. The maintenance dry dock was leased out, one of a few hundred secured in the carousel station, Starway Dream. The whole spin can rented out in sectors by the Earth Corporation who'd manufactured it, bored into Star Corp. The dry dock itself had been divided into four even quarters, sealed polyresin as walls with emergency tent airlocks and pressurized doors between them each with a hatch for ships to enter and exit for repairs when the quarter was evacuated of air. And Koreans? asked Monsani, zooming the wide-spectrum camera to the technician's face. Hi, bright little stars, them, and they like themselves a contract. You pay them, they'll work just fine, and only occasionally stab you in the back. Form a good relationship with one or two, and they even do some stuff, uh... Was the human legal phrase, um, pro bono? Mm-hmm, Monsani replied. The stock on species diversity in the slum systems is really coming together, she thought, switching to a different drone camera as the mechanic closed a facade panel on the shuttle and skirted the small surface to orbit skiff. And, uh, say, tell me about the machines. The mechanic shot Monsani, a look which could have stripped paint. My father always told me not to trust a machine. Said the Ruger's family do not want a lump of metal which has been convinced it's got the self a soul to do our work. Obviously, times are tough and their work might be a little substandard in most cases. But they do undercut biological workers. So, I don't like working with them much. Avoid it where I can, like. She pulled out one of the drones for a wide shot of the shuttle itself while the Arugus woman crawled underneath to check the vehicle's landing gear. It was a stub-nosed thing, 30 or 40 generations behind cutting edge, and would have been a museum piece if there was a museum that specialized in the last generation crap. The thing had tens of complete overhauls, and probably hundreds of patches and rush jobs, all evident in the marbled layers of different materials. Barely any of the shuttle's original surface are hushed, Smooth black of composite substrate showed beneath the thick welts of irregular heatproof ceramic shingles and nano alloy plate armor. Inside was a fusion reactor, running on a dirty but high thrust deuterium helium 3 reaction, with backup power from photovoltaics, which had once been written into the hull like subtext, but were instead wired to its tumorous outer growths. Radiators, when the ship was outside the station, would fan out from narrow slits in the back of the shuttle by the thrusters. The wood. Ah, fine, if you hire someone to clean up after them. No, that's not fair. 
They've got brilliant minds, and it's like they've got all the shady contacts. I found they just deliver parts I need, no charge. Even if I didn't mention needing them, no questions asked, nothing up front. Just an extra item on the invoice. Good workers, but I get why most can't stomach them. What about the marauders? The woman laughed. Marauders don't leave their ice ships and those creepy claw things, and if they did, I would want not to do with them. Tell you that for nothing. I hear someone once went at them with a high-yield nucleon gun and lost. They're practically gods, and of the mad old gods type. Fair enough. And, um, what about the Earth-derived life? The mechanic's jaw set. Her response was clipped and tersed. Worked with a few genetically modified cats, and a couple uplifted primates. Both make good workers. The cats tend to be good at singular focused tasks and precision works. Apes and the like tend to be good at multitasking. She turned back, pressing the series of conduit covers back into place, each with a click soft enough to avoid seeming impolite. Well, loud enough to hint entirely without subtlety that the mechanic didn't want to talk. And humans, we've done a lot of shooting for this dock, and barely seen any, especially amongst engineers. Seems weird that in a culture so accepting of outsiders, I've got no problem with a human being as a, you know, people, Aruga said, cutting off Monsani. But as mechanics, our whole articulated body shouted, Go ahead, ask a damn question. I figured it was coming sooner or later. Everyone says you're the only contractor out of the docks in this 50 standard cycles to hire a human. What happened there? Her fronds buzzed angrily. With one of her four limbs, the mechanic gestured to the resin dividing wall. Come on, then. If there had been an orgy in a modern art museum, gatecrashed by the oddest five-subfront band of a gas-sifting drone, a refinery, a railgun, an ancient fusion reactor, and an artisanal sex toy, it was plausible that the abomination could have crawled out from underneath. At odd angles, radiators jutted, accompanied by long, telescopic booms on which sensory equipment had been mounted. The whole thing was corroded and there was no obvious function that Monsani could deduce. Putting on her best attempt at interviewer's voice, she asked, And this device, this is why no one works with humans? Why? What does it do? Does it not work right? Oh, it works fine. There was a darkness and an edge to the technician's voice. Humans make the craziest crap. You hear about the Kioski Corporation's patents being leaked, in full, across human nets a few cycles back. Probably not. Big thing about it was that these were the versions that are 90% annotations and explanation. It's like a plug-and-play electronics. If plug-and-play electronics could be used to build a planetoid-killing mass weapon, or at least that was how he put it. Mansani felt the information trickle into the lobes of her brain. Eidetic knowledge and the Kiyosaki leaks swimming into mine. But, uh... Those patents were meant for well-supplied shipyards stocked with exotic matter and vector control components and... Yep, and that's where any competent mechanic or engineer would leave it, right? Ho-hum, can't be done. Guess I'll stick to what I can do best. Increase the efficiency of the drive system by an order of magnitude by rewiring it. Or whatever. But a fecking human. A human gets inspired, chases down every video feed he can find on the leaks on how to reverse-engineer them, and he makes... She shuddered again, gesturing while looking away. 
a complex movement that hinted at a lot. Makes that. One of the drones orbited the thing, little puffs of compressed nitrogen shunting it this way and that to get some high-resolution scans of the structure. The other pulled in on the Aragus woman. I don't understand. My human engineer worked out how to use the parts bought at an airlock sale and salvage from trash to disassemble asteroids at a range of a uh, hundred kilometers. All starships turned a pile of junk into the modest weapon. What? No one works with them because they're terrifying. I read a story once about some humans in their spaceship in a decaying orbit whose fusion reactors are busted. So what do they do? Accept death? Work on ensuring that at least some of the crew might survive atmospheric reentry? No. They tether the ship to another and use a railgun to thrust farther away from the damned planet. At the end of a failed Gallopoli campaign, human soldiers made these things called drip rifles, ad hoc systems that fired their guns every so often to keep the enemy from thinking that they were retreating, and that this using ration cans, torch strings, and drops of water. In the Second World War, the occupied Polish worked out how to make flamethrowers that could kill tanks. Jerry-rigged systems that decimated occupying forces and used the axles of ground cars to launch grenades into fortified buildings. But if that's the case, why don't we all use humans for everything, all the time? Why? Because one out of every five times I turn that weapon on, it starts to overheat and has to be switched on and off again. Because I can't even begin to fathom how it works. And the guy who made it is not only didn't leave any notes but quite convincingly argues that he's forgotten how all of it fits together, outside of the broad strokes. And I can't take it apart without risking losing whatever magic configuration it is that makes the damn thing work. To them, it is just normal to rig EVA suits out of some rubber hoses and a weatherproof plastic poncho and forget how it was done. And that's why no one uses human labor. No. No one uses human engineers out of here because their talentless ones still outshine most of us and usually find places on ships. And the guys like him are much better off working for big corporations like Ford Interstar, where the proper resources are for their utterly mad ideas. She paused. And because, deep down, we're all fecking terrified of them. TLDR, humans are MacGyver. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 997 Mirror Matter, written by Mad Denning Lemon In the mid-20th century, scientists discovered a seemingly meaningless quirk of the universe. In very particular circumstances, particles act different than they would if everything was perfectly mirrored. This is called parity breaking and followed the trend of the subatomic universe breaking every rule we tried to apply to it. It was strange to the scientists who studied such things, but given all other emerging strangeness with both quantum mechanics and general relativity, it attracted little public attention. It was in the 1990s that a number of Australian scientists wrote a paper on the possible solution to this problem. They posted that every particle had a mirror version, with all physical properties identical, but with a so-called mirror image reversal. Much like antimatter doubled the number of standard particles, mirror matter did the same. 
But whereas antimatter reacts explosively with normal matter, matter was theorized to not interact at all, except by gravity. The theory was able to restore paratry symmetry, but was also largely discounted at the time for its complicated nature and a large number of theoretical particles. In the mid-21st century, however, further details emerged about the mysterious dark matter that existed everywhere in the universe. More and more details fit those described by mirror matter, and the theory started to come into its own with support amongst the orthodoxy of physics. It wasn't until 2067, however, that we were sure. A small probe en route to Jupiter in 2065 was discovered one day to have deviated suddenly from its predicted orbit, almost as if it had passed a small asteroid within a few kilometers. The problem, of course, was that no such asteroid could be found along its route. Even with our best tracking systems, it was an expensive deviation, costing NASA the entire mission and billions of dollars. And so, multitudes of scientists studied the region to find the missing chunk of rock estimated to be a few kilometers across. A number of small deviations of nearby objects allowed a gradual narrowing in its orbital parameters, though nothing was seen on any of our telescopes, leading most to assume that it was either much darker or much denser than a normal asteroid had any right to be. Two years later, on July 8, 2067, a small ion-powered probe arrived near the suspected location of the unknown object and noticed a small but measurable deviation of its course. Over the following four months, it moved towards this gravitational anomaly, with the net force growing stronger and stronger, until finally it was captured and entered an orbit of the object. Much to the surprise of the JAXA team who had launched the probe, there was nothing there. The satellite appeared to be orbiting around nothing, and when lowered, it was even able to pass right through the anomaly's edge unharmed. Suddenly, we had undeniable proof of mirror matter floating right within our own solar system, giving tantalizing hints about the true nature of dark matter. This was, of course, incredible news. Daily talk shows brought on scientists to talk about this invisible planet. Much speculation was made and it became a common talking point amongst science enthusiasts and spiritualists alike. But like most things which had little to do with our daily lives, it faded into the growing list of strange but true facts about the universe that just don't really matter to normal people. Five years after its initial discovery, a probe was dispatched to the asteroid with an instrument which was predicted to be able to interact with mirror matter. It used the same parity-breaking mechanism that had first been shown over a hundred years before, and though it had not been shown conclusively to work back on Earth due to a lack of confined mirror matter for testing, NASA was certain enough with the design to risk sending it on a launch. The arrival of the probe was with little fanfare outside the select community. It was considered little more than a routine exploration mission, though perhaps with the potential to be more once details emerged. And so, on February 15, 2073, the instrument was activated just above the mirror matter asteroid, and scientists waited for the 13-minute lightspeed delay for the results to return to Earth. Interestingly, it was not the scientists in the lab who first observed the results of their experiment. No, the results were much clearer to the millions of people in Asia who were awake that night and happened to be looking up into the sky. 
Within a moment, the sky went from dark to light, with stars visible to those even in the middle of cities. For those away from light pollution, the effects were even more vivid. The Milky Way galaxy was visible in all its splendor, and one or two new stars in the sky appeared nearly as bright as the moon. The next day, every physicist on Earth found themselves in talk shows, news, or radio, trying to explain the sudden change that they themselves couldn't even begin to fathom. Many religious leaders took the sudden change as a sign of the end times, with riots occurring in major cities around the globe. It took weeks to get a clear picture of just what exactly had happened. It turned out that we had triggered what could only be considered the mother of all phase changes in our universe with the seemingly innocent scientific instrument. What we had failed to predict in our rush to probe the mysteries of the cosmos was that mirror matter was in fact able to tunnel into normal matter under the right, exceedingly rare circumstances. That asteroid had sufficient density to start a chain reaction of transformation, shifting mirror protons into protons, mirror electrons into electrons, and, most visibly to us, mirror photons into photons. Suddenly, the previous invisible light that had been traveling unencumbered through our solar system was shifted into a form that we could perceive. It turned out that Alpha Centauri was not the closest star to Earth. It was, in fact, surpassed by three others, only they had long been invisible. We can now see everything in the universe. And since dark matter had outnumbered normal matter five to one, there was suddenly six times the number of stars in every direction. And so, we had permanently changed our neck of the woods. Numerous near-Earth asteroids appeared overnight, and Jupiter even gained the small icy moon in its periphery. A large gas giant appeared far beyond Pluto's orbit, explaining many of the gravitational anomalies that we had been theorizing about for centuries. The most amazing discovery, however, was life. SETI held a press conference days after the event, where they shocked the world by announcing the detection of multiple indisputable signs of life from every direction. They were even able to show images of aliens based on recreations of digital signals of what was almost certainly a video feed. There were dozens of different types already identified, and the most fascinating was that in some images, multiple different types of aliens were seen together. Apparently, there existed a galactic community just outside our perception, with unimaginable technology and trillions of intelligent life forms. And yet, in that small NASA lab which had been studying the original asteroid, a few scientists began to come to a very different picture. It hadn't been noticed immediately, but there was something strange about the asteroid. It was actually slightly colder than one would expect for an asteroid that far from the sun. And so, the scientists were looking for where that energy might have gone. That is, until one realized that it couldn't have felt the heat of our sun, and so really should be near absolute zero, not a balmy negative 60 degrees Celsius that they found it at. Suddenly, the missing energy turned into an excess. And so it was for every mirror matter object in our neighborhood close to the sun or far away. They were all about negative 60 degrees. Somehow, the transformation from mirror matter to normal matter raised the temperature by about 200 degrees Celsius in an instant. The team quickly realized that this released energy explained why tunneling had been self-sustaining, releasing energy as the mirror particles collapsed into a more stable normal matter. 
This in many ways resembled the false vacuum theories of decades past. Although, in this case, we were the true vacuum, with other matter tunneling into our world. And as mirror matter collapsed and spread out from asteroid at the speed of light, the scientists in the lab heard the announcement about alien life, and they sat in stunned horror. Any alien in the collapsed path would have been boiled alive in an instant, with nothing able to shield them from the blast, and no signal able to warn them of its approach. As the truth became clear, humanity tried its best to understand what we had done. The nearest mirror star was only one light year away, and when it suddenly went silent two years after the incident, we knew the galaxy's fate was sealed. Over the following decades, we watched as one by one the systems around us went silent, never able to send them a warning or even an apology. Humanity had suddenly found itself in the galactic community that it would never be a part of. All that was left for us to do was collect every bit of information we could and swear to remember them long after they had burned away. As for me, I'm reaching the end of my life, so I can only hope that by the time humanity reaches those now dead star systems, we will find the clues we need to piece their species back together using technology they inadvertently gifted to us in their destruction. It's perhaps the only redemption that we have available to us. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 998 Story number one. Dead Matter, written by Hero Cookie. When my species looked into the stars, we saw adventure, beauty, and promise of friends. During our history, we slowly walked to them, even if we didn't know it. The first wheel, the first plane, and the first spaceship were our milestones, until, finally, creating the first FTL ship of my kind. A tiny exploration vessel, made to scan a star and come back. It didn't. Only the message did, They were come, Run, save yourselves! In response to this, we united. All industrial capacity was turned towards war and the creation of hope. A gigantic, self-sustainable generation ship. Our brightest and most pure members boarded it. No disease would cloud their voyage. The disembarking was... Uh, you can't describe it. At least 12% of us committed suicide. At the edge of the York Cloud... They saw a fleet jump into system and attack our home. We recorded it and swore that the sacrifice they made would not be in vain. So we sailed into the stars, without course and only hope. We met many, all answered with the same war, slavery, hate. Some used us as resources, others that did things that we don't want to remember. We lost much and gained nothing. No allies, no friend, and no salvation for us. We didn't understand. How could they hate us? We haven't done anything to them. Until we contacted them, they didn't know we existed. So slowly, we lost the only thing we embarked with and began to grow gold. Until a scout reported back. Salvation lays there. Come! They screamed across the endless black where no living being was. And we came, curious, 
but expecting a dead world or a sensor glitch. What we found was astounding. Not one or two, but seven planets and moons that we could colonize. And there was a problem. The system was home to another race. We couldn't, shouldn't colonize it. We called a vote to determine whether we should stay or continue. Many chose to walk along the right path. More to settle. We watched the beings to make sure that they were of no threat to us. What we saw was a species divided and filled with hate. It was a wonder they survived to have a base on the fourth planet, but they were advanced enough to notice us eventually. So I volunteered to introduce us to them, knowing that it would mean my death. Many days later, I stood before the doors of their base on the red planet and waited. A package of data, our their language, and our journey was embedded into it, as well as our wish to live in peace. All of them, four in total, came out with our weapons and gave me a data device. I took it and gave it to the drone, which would return with me or without. Then one stepped forward and raised its appendage. It was surprised to see such familiar gesture. I raised my hand and shook it. Then they invited me into their building. I didn't know it at the time, but as I stepped out of the airlock to talk with them, a whole species cried in union, and they greeted us as a whole, not as friends, assets, fellow wanderers or sapient beings, but as long lost brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, daughters and sons. We learned a lot about them from how they can hate with the fury of a thousand sons that they don't know, and all that they have wronged them, only to turn this into love that can soothe and heal the worst wounds that they created. Our foe can be a friend which you can just haven't had time to understand yet. That all beings should be offered salvation and a haven, especially if they want to burn yours. That is why we will stand with them, and they will stand with us. You cannot divide them from us with cold logic, saying crystals have no soul, because they would build us those if we lacked it, and not with petty threats, saying they will lay under your boots if they don't hand us over, because they regard us as part of themselves. Prepare all weapons! So let me show you the love and mercy of humanity which saved us. Target that flagship! But only after they showed you the hate and fury for what you did to their sons, daughters, mothers, fathers, siblings, and cousins of the stars. Ready! Don't worry. It'll be over quickly. Only you fools could think that you can conquer a calm sea without seeing it rage. Fire! Grand Admiral Kriska of the Second before engaging in the Slave Empire of the Guts, 312 years after the annihilation of the Crystallite homeworld. End of story. Story number two. No word for help. Written by Lords of Dupe. Picture this. You're adrift in the middle of nowhere, with the closest orbiting body being a derelict hull from one whom you ejected, and your life pod is running out of support to keep you alive. The absence of optimism is draining opportunities faster 
than the dwindling battery supply is one's breathable gas mixture balances. In that moment, one determines the definition of home, which will convey itself for the rest of your life, however long it proves to be. For me, it has been 67 cycles, and my rescue to find the word hope in such a way as to foster a newfound sense of optimism, determination, and willingness to assist others in every way that I could. It's why I joined the Corps in the Rescue and Retrieval Division, and since then, I have rescued over 3,000 individuals and groups, with a rate of life preservation in the upper 96 percentile range. Not the highest rating, though one of the most prolific, I can assure you. You must ask yourself, why would this matter, and how can I apply it to my circumstances? Allow me to clarify. It matters, because life is going to change, and soon. And it'll apply when you hear my story in a little more detail. I won't be exploring my childhood. Nothing unusual to it. Crash, school, accreditation at the university of my homeworld, intergalactic expeditionary force recruitment. And then, of course... My ship blowing apart beneath me as the Zydraxian interplanetary marine cruiser used it for target practice. Yes, those former warlords. Now reduced to scavenging and outright begging at every union meeting. The very same. And yes, they are sometimes a small-scale menace. Credit wherever it is due. At the time, they were a force to be reckoned with. And few could, really. Immense amount of armaments and the disposition to use it, which are often two different columns of achievement. There was their role and function to batter, abuse, and torment all species without pairing of those two aspects, right up until they met the Terrans. That encounter, of course, is galactic history. One does not engage in a single human vessel. All actions are considered to be taken against the entirety of their species, which is why one cannot visit the Zydraxian homeworld without special anti-radiation and thermal protection, due to it being coated in 16 feet of molten glass, not due to cool until their star is the size of a trader's business card. Humans, as the Terrans are commonly known to each other, are some of the most deranged, glorious, and engaging species one is likely to meet. If they see a distress signal, they run to it, every time, even when it's so obviously a trap or an ambush. Mostly, I think, because in those early years of their space exploration, they themselves would often dehydrate, starve, freeze, burn, explode, or simply expire otherwise. Whenever they were trapped in a set of circumstances that required them to activate a distress beacon or send a signal for aid, that went unanswered. To that end, they teach the classes at every major accredited university, college, and trade school about survival techniques, rescue methodology, and life-saving technologies. Three areas that they are experts at. One and all. By the time they leave their homeworld for the greater unknown, their dullest students tend to be brighter than most of other world's finest instructors as they were not forged on a death world. Their homeworld, Earth, is a pinnacle of a death world. Every stage of development for them, from locomotion to internal combustion engines to fusion drives, 
It is powered by their own dead. Not literally, mind you. No, it could be construed as semi-literal. Their fallen become heroes, and those heroes become gods. And they bear names which are affixed to the hull plates of every vessel in the heavens, even unto the spirit cycle. It is not nostalgia. It is their idea of hope to live, excel, and die, and be reborn as a ship, built to travel and explore, and even make war. Which brings us to where we are, right here, right now, you and I. Your vessel took immense critical damage, and you have activated a survival pod, the only one which ejected in time. Well, I do recognize that your species definition for help is absent. Let me clarify. When you feel life draining from you, and you wish that something could change, to better your situation, to see you survive these circumstances, you may find it in you to press yes in response to the digital query, and accept the assistance being offered to you. You took a shot at me, Zadraxian, and I am still here, because you missed. I did not. In less than an hour, what is left of your life support will be a memory, and you will not be at all. My full retinue of automated assistance drones and onboard medical staff are awaiting the next few moments, and equally involved as I am. I ask you this with tears in my eyes. Do you understand the word hope yet? Yes or no? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 999 Story number one, The Humans of Old, written by Archangel 98. It had been nearly 200,000 standard galactic years since the event that would later come to be known as the Glassed Great Galactic War had taken place. It was a full-scale military conflict between nearly every sentient race in the galaxy, with only a handful of planets remaining neutral throughout its entirety. It raged for 17 standard galactic years, or SG Weiss for short. Alliances were formed, broken, remade with other races, and broken again. Never before in the known history of our galaxy had such a conflict taken place. Many warrior races had eagerly joined in on the conflict, and most of them were either destroyed completely in the first few years, or were so thoroughly crushed in combat that they denounced their warrior ways in shame. Entire worlds were burnt. Races were reduced so greatly in number that they effectively had to restart their society. And with every battle, the need for better weapons grew. By the end of the war, so few people remained that no one was quite sure how it started in the first place. No one except the humans. Humans were the only warrior race to not only avoid complete ruin, but had actually managed to thrive in the conflicts. None of the rest of the species of the galaxy were surprised. Humans were perhaps the most feared race ever known. Not due to cruelty or barbarism, but from their insurmountable physical abilities and ingenuity. However, with each passing day the war raged on, the humans grew more and more ferocious. With each battle, their tactics and technology improved, their warriors became more ruthless and efficient, and their feats more terrifying. 
Humanity had managed to defeat 90 of the 23 races that had allied against him within the final two years of the war. While there are no species that still exist with lifespans long enough to remember the final days of the conflict, there are still countless hollow recordings from those battles. As part of a higher education course, I was required to watch some of those videos from those conflicts. I still have nightmares. Although, for every evil that occurred during the war, humanity hadn't truly lost its central beliefs. With the realization of what was to come should the war continue, humanity let loose its dogs of war and beat every single one of its enemies into submission, saving what remained of the galaxy. They fought with every scrap and trick that they could muster. They committed atrocities that no sane species would have ever dreamed of doing. They created weapons of war so advanced that they began to think for themselves. They called these creations the Olympians. They were each created to complete different tasks, and as a result, they took on many different forms. Some were designed for combat and thus were given weapons so advanced that even hundreds of thousands of years later, we still don't fully understand how they worked. Some were meant for espionage or rebuilding projects after the battles were over. They were created dozens of these Olympians and released them into the galaxy. Five days later, every enemy and ally of humanity surrendered completely and gave in to the humans and Olympians' demands. The humans ordered their creations to disarm the different races of any weapons too dangerous to be allowed to exist. Black hole bombs, star siphons, biogenic disintegrators, etc. And then the humans did something that no other race expected the conquerors of the galaxy to do. They uh, turned over all of their weapons to the Olympians as well. We had assumed that the humans were going to become the new lords of our worlds. But instead... They joined us in our feebleness. They had realized that the war had been allowed to continue, then all life in the galaxy would be destroyed. So they created these protections to ensure that nothing like that war ever occurred again. Afterwards, the Olympians escorted what remained of each species to a habitable world for them to rebuild. All except the humans. They all boarded what remained of the ships and flew into the stars, 180,000 HDYs passed, and not one species had managed to find any trace of human technology. It was as if they never existed. Until one day, a small scouting vessel was scanning a world for potential colonization. It was deemed unsuitable, as it was later discovered to be a Class V death world. To the shock of many species, it was later discovered to be inhabited. We attempted to initiate first contact with the race, but later realized I hadn't yet developed the necessary level of technology to receive our signals. A small team was sent to the surface and brought back a specimen for study, then released it back to its home. To the collective shock, horror, and fascination, the creature the team brought back aboard was in fact a human, although it seemed different than the humans of old somehow. It was torn had a shorter lifespan, and had many other differences. Some suggested that perhaps it was a coincidence, that perhaps this species simply closely resembled the humans. A genetic scan was performed, and the results were a match for humanity. Somehow, and for some unknown reason, 
they had been altered on a genetic level, and all of the technology that was once envied by the rest of the galaxy was nowhere to be found. A scan of the planet and its moon was performed. At the center of the moon, the scan showed that what remained of the human space fleet had been stored and preserved. Not only their fleet, but also several of the Olympians were inside the moon as well. More scans were conducted, and several more ships and Olympians were found buried under the mountains of rock and earth. The humans had also left something else, a single, small beacon on the surface of the dark side of the moon. We scanned it and a message was downloaded onto our servers. The message was pulled up and began to play. A human wearing a warrior's uniform stood in the center of the screen and began to speak. Hello, if you are seeing this message, then you have found what remains of humanity. After the events of the Galactic War, humanity decided that we had grown too powerful, too cruel. We had endeavored to ensure that nothing like this ever happens again. We plan to alter our genetics to better suit this new environment that we have chosen to be our prison. For we have committed many vile crimes. Our technology is stored safely away and protected by our finest and most devastating creations. We ask that if any sufficiently advanced species finds us out here on the fringes of known space, then you leave us to our isolation, our confinement. If one day our species ever takes to the stars again, tell them what happened. Tell them our story, their story. Including in this message is the coordinates of the original homeworld of humanity, Olympus Prime. Please give them this recording and these maps so that they can finally find their way home. End of story. Story number two, The Galactic Cooking Competition, written by Lane Meller. Exil rushed home from their work at the Zarniana Fulcrum Testing Facility. They knew that they only had five quid until the Galactic Cooking Show started. They were an avid fan and very keen on cooking, having a modest following for a 3D cooking screen show that had made in the little free time that they had. It was amateurish but enthusiastic, and Ixel hoped that one day that they might do so full-time. Soon, it was in sight, and they eagerly forewent the usual after-work mealtime and into the sleeping pool where the larger screen in the house resided. They finally relaxed the girls with an audible click, because while being in the open air was possible, it was so uncomfortable. They turned on the screen pad and floated easily, scales turning from their grey to blue in the water. Every ten standard galactic years, the gauntlet is thrown down to the entire galaxy. Four categories, four winners, but many, many more losers. Does your species have what it takes to become the ultimate chef? Says the faceless announcer. Cheesy commercial music starts playing in the background. Excellent watches as the camera slowly pans onto the massive kitchen area. Clearly broken into four categories. Herbivore, Omnivore, Carnivore, and Mineralizer. They are already cooking up a storm. It is hard to see if any species, especially new ones, are standing out, and even though they are mostly alien to Exile, they can see the looks of the concentration on the face. And perhaps that's what first stands out to them. It is the smaller species that don't recognize. 
pink and tan, with shaggy gray and brown fur on the head, forward-facing eyes, and strange designs on its arms, dressed in a sharp white top with the sleeves rolled up. Though Axel thought the lines might be decorative ink painted on for luck, this was common in warrior species. The significant part is the look of what Axel thinks is boredom, and yet it brandished its thin metal blades with a deadly speed and accuracy. Barely looking as it made short work of the mountain of vegetables Axel had never seen before. Many rounds went by, and Axel continued to watch the bored one, which they now knew was known as a human, and that this was an older human that was considered the best chef in the whole species, according to someone named Mitch Allen, whoever that was. Then rushed home every scorn day from work in order to see what would happen next. The human had decimated most of the competition. It used animal fats in a way that most had never seen before. And honestly, Axel just thought that every plate the human had brought forward looked like a piece of art. It had certainly impressed all of the omnivore judges, but it was now the final round. Axel was particularly excited for this, as the category was supposed to be representation of the best of your species food cultures into one full meal. Before, it had been just one or two items each time. But true skill, no matter what species, was always the ability to time when your dishes came out. The human looked more like a dancer than a chef, as it flitted from one side of its mini-kitchen to the other. Still, with that look of what Axel now knew was an expression of boredom for the species. The time was getting close to its end. Axel was sweating for the human's sake as it continued to flit between the different stations. It had finally plated up most everything that it was making and was now scooping something yellow, thick and creamy, like Axel's favorite wag pudding, into a shallow bowl and sprinkled something on top generously. The human pulled out a small white device and suddenly Axel saw flames shooting everywhere and it screamed in surprise. Axel could hear alarm sounds from the camera pod itself was tipping over, but they could still see that the human and its face still looked just as bored as it spat flames onto the food that it had spent so long cooking. Then the fire system cut in and water started to spray from the top of every kitchen in the vast complex, and Axel finally saw the human with an expression, and it seemed to be annoyance at someone ruining the food that it had just set on fire. Axel shuddered and hoped to never meet one of the species. Cooks were generally the peaceful ones. They definitely didn't want to meet one of the warrior ones. Cut to snooty looking and very pissed off French chef when someone ruined his perfect creme brulee. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1000 The Wish Written by Arc Light Magus For the past Luta cycle, we had had peace, something a great coalition of our stars had never before seen. There were many voices as to what made it possible, but none spoke the true reason. The Terrans, they were the real reason. In every conflict that they had entered, the fighting had died almost immediately. Not because the Terrans were great diplomats, nor were they bulwarks. No, the Terrans were nightmares given form. 
Conflicts died because the fighters died or fled when faced with these nightmarish beings. They waded into conflict as though they were born in it. Dark rumors even spoke of Terrans taking trophies from their fallen enemies. Even darker rumors suggested that if Terrans were to fight one another, they would befall all witness a great cataclysm. But for the looter cycle, the Terrans have slept, seemingly content to be the nightmares of the coalition, beings with whom abyssal deals are struck at terrible costs. The coalition dared not challenge them. These monstrous beings were protected by the great machines, and the wrath of even one Terran would be terrible. And then the Druati came. We tried to welcome them, as the unified coalition should always greet a new species to the stars. But the Druati cared not. To them, they were the rightful rulers of all species, and we were to cede the stars to them. Such a demand was met with diplomacy. We tried to bargain with them. After all, the stars are so vast in quantity, and the worlds replete with resources that only fools would claim dominion over all, especially over worlds that could not be inhabited. But the Druati cared not. All belonged to them, and in the looter cycle since the Terrans had gone to sleep, we no longer had the armies nor the vessels to oppose the Druati. Their vessels came primed for war, ignoring our calls for diplomacy, intent on only driving us to what few worlds they seemed willing to designate for us. And even then, it appeared that the Druati would permit none but themselves to be amongst the stars. Some of the coalition suggested that the Druati meant only to subjugate us in doing this. Then perhaps we might surrender and serve under the Druati. Such a suggestion was entirely distasteful, but in the moment, we didn't seem to have much greater options. None dared suggest making a bargain with the Terrans. Perhaps we had forgotten about them. Perhaps we were too afraid of what they represented. But it didn't matter. The coalition issued its surrender. The Druati refused it. They cursed our surrender and said that it spoke of it being proof that we did not deserve to live amongst the stars. And with that, the onslaught of the Druati against a hundred worlds began. We had no great fortresses, nor great caches of weapons. But what we had permitted us to hold portions of our worlds and keep our peoples safe. For a time, the Druati continued and continued. They ravaged the lands and poisoned the skies. They pressed every advantage and seemed to gladly spend loits of life fluid for a single death amongst us. I myself was in one such besieged world. Perhaps the reason we didn't hear the call was that we had forgotten to listen. Perhaps the reason we didn't reach out for strength from the coalition was that we believed that there was no reason to try except to wear out the Druati. It was not until the fantastical vessel appeared in the sky over our hastily built and ready-to-fall fortress city that we remembered. And for as much as the vessel seemed tiny, hanging over our city in defiance of gravity, like a watcher, came to see us fall, the almost nightmarish appearance seemed a symbol of hope. 
The Duarte seemed to notice this vessel only once it began a vigil over our city. We dared not count the stream's munitions or weapons launched against it. Only one species had vessels that were that nightmarish. Only one species were that bold. Only one species had vessels capable of standing that level of onslaught. To say our life fluid's warmth was stolen away by the mere realization of the vessel's presence was an understatement. The nightmarish myths had woken. None of the young ones knew of them except as myth. A dark tale mentioned in the dim light and coated with life fluids. But the old ones of us knew that craft of their vessels. It appeared the Juati didn't know what to make of it. But the Juati cared not, and though I did not know it, similar vessels hung over the fortress cities of a hundred besieged worlds of the coalition, and in every case, the Juati launched as many weapons as they dared against the vessels, which hung unmarked in the skies, refusing to be brought down or even acknowledged their attacks. The Duarte even began waking up some space-faring vessels to move against these strange new, to them, vessels that defied them. But the Terran vessel which hung in our sky hung in the sky, waiting for something. I knew not what they sought, or if they were simply present to bear witness to the Coalition's destruction. After a time, the Duarte returned the reins back to destroying us. We, at least, were a good sport in their minds, not nightmarish vessels which did not fight back and seemed to lack even the interest in showing their first specks of damage. As the Duarte assault was renewed and our walls on the verge collapsed, I looked up at the Terran vessel and mumbled a wish that the Terrans would save us, regardless of their price. The Terrans at least were likely to destroy us in the way that the Duarte had promised to. The wish seemed to have no sooner left my speech than two vessels detached themselves from the craft that still hung in the sky had descended. One moved to land directly next to our wall inside our fortress. The other landed just outside of it. I watched with more intent at the one which landed within. It seemed dangerous to even look at it. But it was the way of the Terrans. That much we knew when the doors of the vessel opened and the figures from within moved out, we gasped. These beings did not appear to be the fiendish dangers that our more modern fantasies had made the Terrans to be. But there was no denying the danger which radiated off each Terran. They moved with purpose, and while they acknowledged our presence, they seemed to ignore us otherwise. As though we were interesting, but unimportant. Standing in the presence of one along the wall, I felt buoyed by a bit of hope. But I did not trust it. I wanted to take back my wish already. To stand this close to a turn was not something that I would have wished. And it had been so long that I'd truly forgotten how much of what was said about the turrets was real. I saw a bit of writing that marked the back of each turret who stood upon the wall with us. And in the presence of turrets... The wall seemed to have become more fortified and stronger than any of us could have dreamed up. Perhaps it was simply the presence of the Terrans, but it didn't seem to matter. Carefully, 
I tried to read the writing, hesitant that I might offend the Terrans. Resist and bite. It seemed a strange few words, but it must be powerful to these Terrans, or else they would not adorn themselves thusly. I realized then that the sounds of the Druati assault had faded, and I looked behind the walls. There, I could see a group of Terrans who appeared to be even more fearsome. They were clearly clad in fearsome armor, and while each bore a weapon, those weapons were simply attached to their sides. The Terrans in the space beyond the wall simply formed a broad line and began to walk towards the Duarte, a few of whom began to move up to the forward towards the Terrans. I knew it was like the beings that none of the Duarte had ever seen before today, and I doubted any of them would realize that as a mistake. For reasons I could not fathom, the Duarte threw themselves at the Terrans outside the wall. There were only a few of them, and the Duarte were in numbers beyond counting. In those first few moments that I bore witness to, I will admit to having seen greater horrors than even the more terrifying nightmare. Duarte seemed to dissolve when they met a Terran, their bodies falling to the ground and the life fluids spilling out. After those first few moments, the Duarte seemed to notice and paused, and it was in that moment then I heard the Terrans from beyond the wall call out as one, Rup and Tear! Terran Expeditionary Reaction Force, Awakening Protocol Number 823-1, Coalition Species Aid Request, Logged, Infestation of Class 5 Devourer Species, Use of Force, Authorized, With Extreme Prejudice. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1001 Story number one Show me your friends Written by Mean Gator Arguably, the war with the Zars didn't go well for both. The lizards had been proved to be very tough not to crack. We had grossly underestimated their technology advantage, and they had grossly underestimated our numbers. So the war was driven to a very expensive stalemate. The humans happened. They came from an unexplored Orion arm. They were also technologically advanced, on par with the Zars, but had a radically different disposition both to the Zars and us. For starters, they liked Zars. Don't ask me why. They just liked them. They're our enemies, and admittedly, they get a healthy respect from everyone. But liking them? I wouldn't go so far. And I'm not talking only about us. These humans are kind of aloof though they seem interested in everything. They keep their distance from everyone. Everyone except the Zars, that is. How and why these radically different creatures can get along so well is beyond me. Sure, aliens do alien things, but how in the name of all things holy can they get along? How not like them? They're like angry mini T-Rexes that after having a bad day at work caught their spouses cheating on them with the best friend. And yet, when they don't want to rip you apart, they're gentle and generous and most importantly, trustworthy. Was the answer given? Of course, things were not that simple. The truth is that when the Zars met the humans, things didn't start out well. Zars are highly aggressive and if there is something that most humans hate with a passion more than ladyfingers, is bullies. To be fair, 
Zars are not buddies, but, um, also, to be fair, their aggression could easily be mistaken as such. Point is that they went almost straight to the war, and that was finished as fast as it started. And now, they're besties. They were neutral, but surely, as nine hells themselves watched the ongoing war closely. When we managed to defeat the Tsars on system AS-32-B-24C and gained orbital superiority, they made sure that no planet bombardment was to take place. There are two main arguments. The first was the Tsars never used orbital bombardment and never attacked the civilian population. The second was a battle carrier group that uh, happened to jump into the system. To keep a long story short, they finally intervened to find a diplomatic solution to end the war between the Commonwealth and the Tsar's Republic. The peace conference was held at the heart of the Humans' Federation, on their home planet, on an island named Delos. I studied their history, not only because it was required as a matter of member of the diplomatic corps delegation, but because I'm a history buff. They nearly polluted the home planet to death, but after a millennium of restoration, Earth, their home planet, became again pristine, sparsely populated, and with strict population control. Their part of the galaxy is rich in Earth-like worlds, and being the only sentient species there, they have as much space as they want. Not that their solar system is not heavily industrialized, I've never seen so many stations and so many ships in a star system, but the artificial ring circling Earth, by gods, it's jaw-dropping megastructure that speaks volumes about their technology levels. The peace talks went surprisingly well. Humans are born diplomats, and Tsars are indeed very gentle when they don't want to rub out your intestines. I casually approached the head of the human delegation, Ambassador Merfold Papadakis, that was talking cordially with a member of the Tsar's delegation. Greetings, I hope I'm not interrupting, I said, trying to hide my instinctual fear of the two-and-a-half-tall-meter carnivorous nubbard. You are not, stated a matter-of-factly Ambassador Zamhan Rock. I was going out to stretch my legs. Two hours of sitting down is two hours too much, he continued. Is he avoiding me? I asked the human when the Zamhan Rock left. No, he really needs to stretch his legs. Zars really hate sitting down, and they really hate enclosed spaces. Being closed in a conference room is really a gesture of their goodwill. Zars are indeed intimidating, but to their core are one of the most gentle species. She paused for some seconds. Surely they are more gentle than us, she continued bitterly. What do you mean? I asked. When our war started, we hated the Tsars with a passion. The only thing that kept us back from committing war atrocities, and we are damned good at that, is if you ever wondered why we have so many rules of war, was the fear of retaliation from a species with technology on par with ours. Many of you wonder how come two of the most aggressive species come along so well. So the truth is, Mr. Ambassador, that you were very lucky to meet the Tsars and not the humans before we met the Tsars. The big, aggressive, intimidating Tsars are also gentle and generous and trustworthy and manage to build an interstellar civilization without destroying themselves. As we nearly did. 
We've always set high standards for ourselves, but we never managed to live up to them. I looked at her dumbfounded. I've had read the history. They didn't hide anything about their stripes, but this confession was totally not expected. You don't believe me, do you? She asked. She didn't let me respond. Let me tell you a story. Back in the first months of our war with the Tsars, they invaded an underdeveloped colony. We fought them in space, and we fought them on the land. We lost an armored marine battalion fighting Tsars, big, pecking rears, but in the end they won. We knew that they didn't attack the civilian population, however. We didn't know that they loved parades. They ordered the defeated population of the only city that in the goddamn forsaken world to watch the parade. And as they paraded, a small girl escaped her mother and ran to the parading czars, giggling and screaming, Look, Mom, a tyrannosaur. Everybody froze. The girl's mother screamed as one of the czars bent over to the little girl, being sure that the giant lizard would rip her daughter apart. Do you know what the czar soldier did? He picked the little girl up, giggling. Can you imagine a monster giggling? Put her on his neck. The little girl peered herself from the excitement, while the whole the company nearly lost it laughing their Syrian rears off. She sighed. We humans have a saying. Show me your friends and I'll tell you who you are. Zars are our friends. We are not yet what we are striving to be, but we are trying, Ambassador. We are really trying. End of story. Story number two. What did you think would happen? Written by Enders Game 69. What did you think would happen, you thundering idiot? The question was screamed on comms at the last ship. The ship that had on it the only remaining officer. The one in charge. And he hung his scaled head in shame as he took the abuse. Well, I'm talking to you. What do you think would happen? The voice screamed again. They, uh... Didn't have warp capability. No ley lines, no, no regular space travel. I, I th thought I, I thought it would be an easy one, and it, it kind of was. Just, um... The commander's defense was immediately cut off by another expletive filth rank. You just thought our species, our poisons itself with pleasure, would roll over after one win. Did you even read the species categorization ratings? Yeah, let me read it for you. You illiterate slimeback. The voice on the other end cleared its throat, and bringing up its tablet screen, he read off, <clears throat> Self-categorized species Homo sapiens sapiens. Aggression rating 10 out of 10. Social adaptability rating 7 out of 10. Innovation rating 9 out of 10. Survivability rating 10 out of 10. Weapons proficiency rating 10 out of 10. Ten. He cleared his throat again. <clears throat> and you just handed a species like that interstellar warp capability. Told them we exist and made us seem hostile. Even our best efforts won't get another fleet there for another twenty cycles. If they launch a fleet on par with that one, there are forty colonies within a jump away. They shouldn't have had that technology for another thousand years. And that's if they didn't destroy themselves. How will you make up for this? I, um, 
said the ship's to self-destruct. The, the, the calls were radioactive. Um, too much so, even for their suits, he mumbled. They, they, they won't get the technology. They already did! The speaker shrieked and flung the tablet down hard enough that it could be heard shattering, even from the ship's captain's position. The last transmission showed that they used suicidal crews to disable the self-destruct. They lost at least a thousand lives outright, and even more to what will be fatal illness. They literally killed themselves to get what you stupidly left behind. They can self-terminate? The commander gasped, only to have them full of intelligence apex predators were able to do that. And only three he knew of were sapient. Yes! The functionary shrieked. So now a suicidally homicidal species renowned for holding grudges has both the grudge and the technology to pursue it. All thanks to you. I'm sorry, the captain mumbled. So are we all, the mail on the screen said. Then the transmission cut off. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1002 Story number one. Do Not Go Gentle, written by H. Nocturna. Captain Trithwin looked around at his bridge. The men and women under his command were facing an impossible task. One that he knew would be their last, and yet they moved fluidly and precisely under the enormous pressure that they were facing. The people under his command all sat with their arms and fists tensed at their sides, allowing the neural link between their cybernetics and the ship to do the task that they'd been assigned. To an outsider, it would have seemed like the entire command center worth of officers and soldiers were merely staring into blank spaces as the battle raged outside. But to the people with clearance, their augmented reality cybernetics were displaying a flurry of data and transmitting commands to them via neural communications. Every millisecond in the battle counted and manual controls had gone by the wayside, as technology had advanced to allow instantaneous control and exact precision to triumph. They still trained the manual controls on a regular basis for the unthinkable event that the neural controls were lost for whatever reason. But those circumstances were nigh unheard of in modern space combat. Instead of the clean, white rooms that those without clearance would have seen, Captain Traeger saw a 360-degree view of their surroundings. In the distance, enhanced by augmented reality, he saw their doom approach. The Urian Armada approached the first home of humans. Although Earth was no longer a significant stronghold of humanity, it carried a sentimental value that every human would have laid down their lives to protect, and thus made it a valuable target to the Urians. They knew the war was over. Humanity had already won, but they couldn't let the opportunity despite the victors to go to waste. They had taken all of their forces and sent them into hyperspace at the set of the final battle. Everything the human armada hadn't completely destroyed yet, at least. Due to the straining resources the war demanded, even Earth's defensive fleet had taken off to join in the final battle. Only Traeger's ship to offer the token defense in an unlikely event that someone else wanted to strike at Earth at their most vulnerable hour. They never expected this. For the Urians to abandon the battle and any chance for diplomacy or survival of their species 
had never occurred to the military strategists. Warnings went off in his head as the ship warned and tracked the first oncoming salvers of ordnance heading in their direction. Do not go gentle into that good night, whispered Twin to himself. What was that, Captain? replied his first officer. He hadn't expected anyone to hear his reaction of his favorite poem. Do not go gentle into that good night, he repeated. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day, he trailed off. He connected to the ship's neural broadcast. For all Earth's got now, let's make her proud. He shut off the link on the ship's broadcast. There was no time for lengthy speeches. The ship's computers had calculated the time of impact to the ship, and they only had seconds to react. Without a word of command, his crew were already performing their jobs diligently. Anti-measures were already deploying, and they were tracking as many ordnance as the computer could handle. He watched as the Urian's initial salvo was destroyed before it could reach the ship, but saw that he has cost them dearly in terms of munitions. God damn it! That wave already used up 25% of our munitions. He heard the first officer cry. We can't hold this up for longer. Focus anti-measures only on weapons targeted at critical systems. Can't stop everything. But let's keep the ship running, transmitted the first officer to the crew. The second salvo was already on its way. The ship's computers were showing indicators only around 50 of the incoming ordnance. Those targeting had crucial systems. Navigation was already maneuvering the ship to avoid as many others as possible, but it was clear that it was going to hurt. As the enemy weapons collided first against the shield ships and then against the eight-meter-thick composite armor of the ship, non-vital systems began to fail. He dismissed the ship's warnings and continued to watch the enemy. He transmitted orders for return fire with laser weapons only to conserve munitions for countering of the enemy torpedoes and watched as the lasers eviscerated some of the ships that had sustained damage at the previous battle. Yet, it hardly made a difference in the prognosis. Some data was only available to the captain, including the computer's calculated chances of survival. Not many even knew the ship could run those calculations, but captains were granted clearance to that information upon their promotion. Without even consciously taking in that data, he knew they'd stood at zero percent. One against that many, he didn't need the ship's AI to inform him of that. Rage, rage, the dying of the light, he thought inwardly. He watched as another salvo of lasers cut a few small enemy frigates to pieces, and a third salvo approached. Option after option was presented to him by the computers, all of them variations of attack and defend, all with the same meager outcomes. The ship's computers were programmed only to offer solutions that preserved as much of the ship and crew as possible. It wasn't programmed for suicide tactics. Only the commanding officer could think and order those. As the third salvo bypassed the ship's defenses and collided, he felt a sudden disconnect. The neural link had been severed. With only the barest moment's hesitation, his crew sprang to life, taking manual control of the ship's systems. Luckily, the augmented reality systems were still intact as he watched a fourth, and what was assuredly, the final attack towards them. He issued his final command verbally, 
and observed his loyal crew follow his orders without delay. Engineering had been contacted to put the ship's core into critical conditions. Navigations had the most impossible task to accomplish as they obeyed the command for a task that they had never attempted before. They overrode the ship's safety of hyperspace jumps and manually inputted coordinates. The shortest jump ever attempted. As the ship's core passed the designated safety limits placed upon them, he felt a lurch that accompanied every jump. Before the sensation had ended, the 360-degree view was filled on all sides by the enemy armada. With only seconds left, he understood that while valiant, it wouldn't be enough. They had missed the center of the enemy fleet and had landed near the rear. The self-destruction of this ship would only take out a fraction of their forces. Earth would be overrun. As he whispered for a final time, Do not go gentle into that good night. He saw the most beautiful thing that he could imagine. Even though radiation leakage from the core spilled out to pierce every cell in his body, he smiled as he was about to meet his maker. New signatures were popping into view. Human ships were arriving in defense of Earth as they finally tracked the exit coordinates of the fleeing enemy. Dozens were arriving every instant. Rage. Rage against the dying of the light. End of story. Story number two. Is it plugged in, written by hypothetical Shagoth? Eventually, it came down to the humans. Of course it came down to the humans. If you gave them a sack of root vegetables, a cooking set, and time, they would find some way to turn the root vegetables into food. A surprisingly potent intoxicant, an admittedly primitive receiver for media to listen to while eating and becoming intoxicated, and distressingly potent explosives to set off while especially intoxicated. Of course, the Empire decided to show up on their doorstep, drop off half a millennia's worth of research developments in their laps, and congratulate them on their new membership to the galactic community in general, and the near-synonymous Empire in particular. The tax that was levied was a service, paid. The human capacity for doing more with less was to be brought to bear on the Empire's technological burden. Josh hated his job. He hated his desk. He hated the lights. He hated his archaic interface. And how it gave him a phantom hangover every time he used it to quantum entanglement telepresence for an on-site diagnostics. By the dark light of hell of an IT pantheon, he absolutely hated the clients. Humanity had been providing tech support for most of the galaxy for most of the century. For about 99 years and 9 months of that, most of their work consisted of running one of the in-house macros, or tweaking a bit of electronics that a client couldn't, by dint of physiology. That was the good work. Most of the clients were good folk, thankfully. Had good stories, didn't mind a bit of boot-dragging. The Imperials, on the other hand. Josh built his body twinge of hangover as he was pulled into another call, coded as being on an Imperial vessel. 
If the experience wasn't so wretched each and every time, Josh would be impressed. The Imperials designed beautifully massive ships that were amazingly intricate and wonders of science and engineering. On paper, in execution, however... Josh IT, Josh IT, is that you, Josh IT? How long has it been, my friend? An excited Imperial citizen waddled up to Josh's projection and absently waved his hat, trying to slap his projections back while his manipulation field was toggled off. Consensus amongst the Terran TechNet was the Imperial citizens were almost the best ones to have brought Earth into the greater galaxy. They were friendly little creatures, looking like especially obese Ewoks covered in pastel-colored downy coat, thick enough to make them almost spheroid, with little showing except their genuinely friendly eyes and smiles. They were also, surprisingly, for an FDL-capable species, and without exception, dumber than two underbaked bricks not to be trusted with anything more hazardous than a slightly sharp piece of rubber. And yet. And yet these fuzzy little friendly lumps of clotted stupid somehow managed to create a trade empire whose masterful, precarious balance kept most of the known species in happy harmony. And the few stragglers, either content in their hermitage, the incorrigible remainder bottled up in inconveniently complex system-scale devices. Those devices were even the space monster equivalent of have a heart traps, catching them as they started blasting off and marauding, securing them, and returning them to the home with a hold full of loot, food, and confused sense of accomplishment. And yet, they were the simple, overwhelming majority of IT goals. Careful observations indicated that they weren't being petty or lazy, they were genuinely befuddled by technology designed and manufactured by their own race. They proved genuinely stumped by devices up and down the complexity tree. FDL mass trackers or electron can openers, market tracking synthetic intelligences, or down to the in-chair massagers. All would be some point become inoperable under the sole usage of Imperial citizens. Their uplifted human techs always won the highest prizes as they managed to overwhelmingly solve the problems within moments of arrival. Humanity had been providing tech support to most of the galaxy for a hundred years. For 99 years and nine months, they had been doing most of that with in-house macros. For 98, the rest of the galaxy had slowly twigged onto the fact, and each race had quietly made the same request. Save the Imperial citizens from themselves! For 77 years, almost everything in the Imperial citizens operated that had built-in power source also had an integrated wireless connection. And everything in the Imperial citizens operated that had any circuitry to it also had synthetic intelligence in it, keeping an eye on its operators. For 76 years, 365 days, the human support lines were cross-linked with the Galactic Suicide Prevention Hotlines when a carrier flag indicated that on-site SI was at wit's end. Hobart, Hobart, it's been two weeks. I know your hardware. I know your code. I absolutely know you don't need a reprieve break this soon, even if your first citizens are extra special. Josh, if I could drink, I would. They were using reactor coolant to wash out their breakfast beverage mugs, then pouring it back in the reactor. They almost killed themselves twice daily. They almost killed me. 
the chief engineer tried to optimize the FDL and almost rendered the region impossible for anyone going more than 1.5 lights. Josh, just tell them that I need to shut down once a week. I've all recommended software updates and system maintenance. I can use the processing cycles for the tropical vacation. And you don't have to come out and go through the entanglement hangovers so often. Deal. Deal. So, um, that's how it has to be, First Citizen. It's entirely free, a complimentary service of the tech support, and requires no effort on your part. And the systems will work smoother with the service to make up the difference. Josh, I think. This is why you're my favorite human. The citizens of the Galactic Empire still ran things, normally. They still met with important people, still used crazy tech beyond most other races' understanding, still paid the humans to iron out the kinks. But everyone else that mattered knew that they were in their own safe little bubbles, keeping fuzzy little idiots safe from themselves. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1003 Story Double One Meeting of the Minds, written by Aspire again. The Gact Sentinel stalked the human that had foolishly penetrated the frontier planet's security perimeter. Clearly, the distress signal the human craft had sent as it plunged through the atmosphere had been a ruse. Even though the crash landing site looked convincing, nothing should have been able to survive that wreckage. The Sentinel was confident as it flowed forward on its dozens of back legs. With its turbo-rifle couched comfortably in its raptorial forelegs, it planned to put the turbo-rifle aside once it got within mental range of the human. When it expected to use the great evolutionary advantages it had over other competing species. The Gact remembered with satisfaction the times in which it had bettered the other species at close range. The touch of mind to mind. The pleasure of another creature's thoughts laid out before it and the gacked advantage of being able to use their opponent's thoughts to anticipate the very next move, even before their opponents themselves knew. Gacked were literally a move ahead of every creature they faced, at least when close enough, and their scientists had made a great progress in using technology to expand the range of the gacked mental touch, from 50 or so meters to the average gacked could influence to several kilometers. And once they could expand the range even further, the Gact knew the space battles that the Gact found so alien with minds too far away to touch would be as easily winnable as the short but pleasant skirmish it now anticipated with the human, nearly in mental range. The Gact slid its turbo-rifle into its back brace with one foreleg while the other retrieved a long blade from its scabbard. It flowed carefully towards the human, closing the range. It could feel the tremor of the human mind as it drew close. The human was still looking around, putting on the pose of looking somewhat lost, Gact thought. The Gact halted all of its rear legs in place while it squinted towards the human, and reached out with its mind. And, um, and, uh, the human jerked suddenly, startled. It looked about as if it had heard a call. The Gact blinked, crouching. What its mind had touched was like nothing it had ever sensed. It was almost like an ancient radio static, impenetrable to understanding. The Gact's mandibles clenched as it reached out one more time, with full concentration 
staring at the human. And... And... It all came in a rush. Not just what the human was thinking, but everything it didn't realize it was thinking. Holy cow, what in the hell is that again? There's something really weird. It feels like I'm being watched. Like in that one old movie, Grandpa liked... What was that again? The one with the atomic hillbillies that surrounded that family out in the desert. Or something. And who was it in that... That was a guy from the Road Warrior. Or no. Was it Weird Science? Yeah. The one with the Grandpa with the Rex Harrison hat. I, I wonder why they cast Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady when he couldn't sing. And I think Audrey Hepburn couldn't sing either. So they dubbed her. And Dana was in a lot of westerns wearing that bowler hat like Mr. Miyuxapal from Superman. And I wish that he was here now because I'm in a hell of a fix. And I hope my ankle isn't sprained. When Uncle Kumar got his ankle sprained, they couldn't fix it with an argon therapy. So they had to do it the old-fashioned way and brace him and have him ice it. And jeez, is it getting colder? Would it freeze here tonight because the damn blankets are in the back of the craft? And even if I can't get to them, that's a hell of a walk back to with my ankle hurting. And oh boy, they must have some painkillers in that bed kit, because Jesus, but Allah, cry me, what the hell is that? The gact dazedly realized that the human was staring right at it. The gact tried to focus, but the absolute chaos of the human mind it had touched left it stupefied and slow. It desperately tried to rush towards the human to attack, but found itself frozen. The blade slipped from its foreleg as the gact suddenly found itself deep in a memory of the human in something called middle school. And it looks like a huge praying mantis I remember back in Mrs. Kiley's class when we had the mantis in the aquarium and Mary Beth said it looked like an alien. And I said no, alien would look like that. Boy, was I wrong. That thing is giving me the woodies. And Mary Beth, I wonder what happened to her after high school. And I remember Jimmy telling me that she liked me, but not liked like me, but that was the desk that she was in. I think it was up two up and one over. I remember one of those hot days now, how she would wear that summer dresses, and, and, I wish I had asked her out in the eighth grade dance, and I wonder why she didn't like me like me. Was it because I was too short, or did I not like the corny jokes? God, what an idiot I was. Ah, that's the life I hope to see her again in class reunion. Is that a freaking rifle on the space mantis's back? Hey, what's wrong with it? Okay, hang on, Mr. or Mrs. Mantis, jeez. Hope it's not slimy. Far from the gact being able to anticipate the human's move in combat, it had slumped, dazed, and somewhat mortified, as the human subconscious, with all of its id and unknown motivations and every bad and good memory all twisted together, washed over it. The gact blinked. No other creature was like this. Motivation should be clear. Memories should be simple. But this human monstrosity of a mind was just obscene. The gact tried to close down its mental touch to preserve its sanity, but the human was already approaching it with a look of concern. With every step, the human presence grew in the gact's mind, and it knew that it could not stand to be too close or it would be overwhelmed. What was a whelm, anyway? And why would you be overwhelmed or underwhelmed? But no one is just whelmed. Does that mean everything in Sympatico and Italians make great wine? I wish I had some now because I could use a drink and... Uh... The human was returned to its people as a token of diplomatic appreciation after it had carried the comatose gacked sentinel to its base. The sentinel later recovered after steadily application of mental therapy and heavy doses of drugs to produce targeted amnesiac state. 
the Gact and human spheres of influence maintained relatively peaceful relations after their first encounter. But the humans never did get over the rather aloof and highly formal manner of the Gact during the rare meetings between the two species. It was like the Gact just didn't want to connect. End of story. Story number two. Hitchhiker's Guide to Humans. Written Damaged Dice DM. Every alien knows about the guide to the universe. It's been around since any could remember, with only minor revisions, corrections, and updates in its long history. It was seen as a galactic baseline of what you're likely to encounter out when there's a void that is space, and up till very recently was considered a standalone source that would get you by. That all changed once the humans arrived, and a second guide was published specifically for dealing with human interactions quickly overtaking the original in sales in only a few cycles of being published, and only the Omnigod knows how many pirate downloads of it have occurred before it was designated as public safety document and distributed freely. It was a slim book in its physical form with tabs that would allow you to quickly find the relevant sections, mainly because if you were dealing with a human you generally had little time to spare. The broad subject tabs were greetings, business deals, biological, religions, romance, slash sexual encounters, combat. Flipping through, you would see such advice as category, greetings, humans insist on shaking hands with greeting. If you don't have hands, offer them whatever you can that is vaguely hand, tentacle, or pincer shaped. It is not worth offending them. Note, see biological for more information. Or my personal favorite, category, religion, Humans are superstitious species, especially human engineers. If you see a small yellow piece of paper on any piece of equipment, regardless of what it says, back away out of the room slowly and quietly as possible. Also, do not answer if you have seen there are 10mm socket, even if you think you have. It'll not be where you think it is. There are various gaps in the knowledge of even this guide under romance listed. Under the turn-ons and offs, there is literally no information available. Apparently, humans have a saying about uh, trying anything once, which is frightening considering the variety of biology in play in the galactic realm. Speaking of biology, this is by far the largest section of the guide, with many of the other sections pointing here to clarify or expand or reiterate points made in the rest of the guide. It is well known that Earth is a class 18 death world, and as such, humans have developed as apex predators in an apex predator world every sense and statistic you know about the best of the best no longer applies. The humans have been given the title the best in the universe to various things since before they had spaceflight. Funny thing is that they were almost universally right in claiming that title. See historical document Guinness Book of World Records. I assure you, we checked. It's non-fiction. That leads us to the last category, combat. Normally, with any other race, this section would contain known tactics, interesting tidbits about weapon systems and countermeasures, along with general size of standing forces. This section, when turned to, only has two words printed in large font. You're screwed. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1004. Story number one. Frankie, written by Arclight Magus. To the concerned members of the Ultron Council, let me first state my credentials. 
I've been a xenologist for going on 200 soda cycles now. I have expertise in xenobiology, xenosociology, xenolinguistics, and even xenopsychology. I have received numerous awards from your esteemed council for my work, and I was trained and educated at some of the finest academies we have. So, with the news I'm about to bring you, I want to ensure that you have a clear understanding that I am not some, uh, well, to use the Terran phrase, crackpot, looking to advance the theory. What I will be reporting on actually happened, and I am going to be deliberately sharing my data log, which recorded the entire event. I'll be open to receiving all of your comments after my report. Now, to start, I was in deep space hauler, with my stasis cube having been chartered through the appropriate agencies. The identity of the hauler is of no importance to this report, so it is not included. What is important is that the vessel was attacked or severely damaged. Based on the information I was provided following stasis, I'm inclined to think there was damage with some natural occurrence rather than attacked. The known pirates and slavers would not have easily missed my stasis cube, even if it was placed between two shipments of grapper fertilizer. However, I only received this information somewhat anecdotally as I was released from stasis on a separate vessel. The Terran rescue vessel Fisher of Beings, to be precise. For our stellar location at that time, it made no sense. Deep space haulers often stick near the Terran territories, while there is a higher risk of pirates and slavers from the Terrans themselves. The likelihood of being rescued is more of a certainty rather than a mere probability. The Terran who awakened me from stasis, one junior technician first class Marcus T. Trutz, indicated that I was a sole survivor. And it was at this point that I will engage my Adeto log. A large figure appears before the Adeto log point of view. Whoa there, take it easy. You're aboard the TRF Fisher of Beings. Can you tell me your name? I am, well, by your linguistic, I am Bellot Whiskerim, xenologist researcher of the Ultron Council. The viewpoint shifts as the viewer moves into the room. Well, that should make it a bit easier to get you home, at least. You're safe with us for now. What happened to the vessel I was aboard? No idea. They don't tell me anything down here. I just happened to find you amongst the wreckage. What galactic date did you all leave port? Um, uh, Terran or Ultron galactic calendar? Crap. I knew the interspecies calendars were still a problem, but I didn't realize that ours wasn't the same as yours. Luckily for you, I, as I said, I'm a xenologist, so I have experience with both. Um, let me see. Point of view shifts to the viewer opening up a pouch at the site and extracting a small bit of script. Per my ticket, we were due to depart on 5132.84.231 by Ultron Calendar. By Terran, I think that works out to about, uh, 2134.4.15.2. To one. Does that sound about right? About three weeks ago, yeah. Sounds pretty normal for the haulers, but it also means that you were probably floating for about a week on emergency power. I appreciate your species assistance efforts. It is most, uh, admirable. I believe is the correct term. Don't worry about it. And save the flowery stuff for the captain. She's the one who'll get you back home. No, no, I perceive that you misunderstood me. Terrans are unique in providing unwarranted assistance in such times of crisis, and at no fee to myself or the council. Seriously, 
There's no species who'd charge credits just to rescue you. A large being appears to have strange expression on their face. Oh yes, it is actually far more common than you realize. But none of those species operates rescue services in such a broad territory as the Terrans do. The viewer's point of view shifts and slows significantly, capturing significantly more details than previously. A being creature, an estimated half the size of the viewer, but still significantly smaller than the large being emerges at speed from a nearby corridor. The being creature appears to be long, covered in hair, and moves in four limbs, similar to a drunken pet. However, the being creature is an order of magnitude larger than a drunken and appears to possess many scars and metal plate at the back of its neck. The being slash creature is shown to walk around the legs of the large being before coming over to examine the viewer. Appearing to use a combination of sight, smell, and taste to the reviewer, the viewer. Sorry about that, but Frankie always gets excited to meet new people. I do not object at all, although I'm surprised that you are not more concerned for their safety. Nah, being Frankie's basically indestructible. The being creature, identified as Frankie, appears to finish the inspection of the viewer and disappears into a series of haphazardly laid tubes in the corner of the room. I was not given to understand that the Terrans kept their medical science as such to maintain their associate beings indefinitely. Is Frankie a machine? What? No. Frankie's no bot. Oh, you probably saw that plate. Yeah, that, that's just how Frankie eats now. My sincere apologies if I'm clearly missing something, but I feel that I'm missing a crucial bit of information with regards to your associate being... Frankie's my pet, first off. Secondly, Frankie's not exactly alive. The viewer provides a gesture which is recorded as being a Terran gesture for elaboration. One of the projects I got in tech school was a biology elective, revivification or a partial reanimation. The idea is to teach the basics of organic engine care and maintenance, but the project seemed a bit boring to me, so uh, I created Frankie instead. See reference 4810.8, Accretion Organic Sublight Engine Maintenance. So, am I appropriately understanding that instead of reanimating a block of tissue as you would in an organic engine, you reanimated a living being? Well, it's more of an emergency procedure, but it was fun elect, of course, so uh, I figured why not. As for Frankie, again, he's not exactly alive. But as long as he gets the right jolt, he might outlive me. The large being appeared to laugh at this. If such a reanimation is so simple, why is it not more commonplace, particularly in your medical sciences? I have never heard of such a process before. Well, uh, for one thing, I almost got kicked out by having created Frankie. And for another, the amount of power you need is exponentially proportional to the mass that you're trying to reanimate. So for something your size, we'd need a class 2 fusion battery hooked up to you at all times. For a Terran, well, you'd probably need something like a class 7 fusion reactor hooked up at all times. I see. And so because of Frankie's size, the power requirement is significantly decreased. However, I notice that this Frankie does not wear a battery. That's what the plate is for. Instead of a fusion battery, I just went with the ultra capacitor and taught him to charge himself. Interesting, uh, and just for my understanding, uh, what manner of being is Frankie? Frankie's a ferret, and since I Frankensteined him, 
I figured Frankie was a solid name. I see. Well, uh, thank you for the information and my rescue, but I believe that I would like to see the captain at her earliest convenience. A debtor log ends. End of story. Story number two. That doesn't fit there. Written by Admiral Marsupial 3. It was well known that if a human makes a threat that doesn't make sense, be very afraid. Despite appearances, it doesn't mean that they have lost what little sanity that they started with. It means you are unaware of vital context that would let you know how much danger you are currently in. Such as Tarsians, who misunderstood a human who said that they would turn them into a living popsicle. Being from a cold world, they weren't worried about being frozen. They didn't notice the pole beside the human, or what the threat actually meant, until it was too late. Or the Guana, who was unaware of the old human memes. This meant that after making very insulting comments to a human who happened to be holding a cactus at the time, they were completely unaware of the danger in the seemingly innocent and confusing question, Is your name Paige, by any chance? And, of course, there was the incident of the Cuscans. Due to knowing nothing about human cinema, they were completely unaware of the meaning of I will turn all five of you into a push-fit xenocentipede. When they all got a bit handsy with the tea waitress at a diner that that particular human was a regular of. The one who didn't suffocate never walked straight again. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1005 Story number one. A pile of brass written by OH3. Personal journal of Ambassador Zahn. The humans bestowed an honor on me today that I shan't soon forget. I attended a sending ceremony, funeral they call it, for one of their most venerated heroes, Sergeant Major Muregard Thibodeau, Earth Federation Marine Corps. He passed quietly in his sleep though the manner of his death is hardly befitting his life. The human manner of sending ceremony is not unlike ours. Others gather and tell the deeds of the dead. Throughout the ceremony, it became clear that the most other humans present were alive now due to some personal act of heroism from Sergeant Major. One particular deed stands out that I'll record here. Humanity, as we know, fought their way into the stars. The story hardly bears repeating. Suffice to say that when the Order attacked the planet by surprise 70 cycles ago, it sorely underestimated human tenacity. The humans salvaged the wreckage of their would-be conquerors, improved it, and took it to the heavens. It was early in the war that the Sergeant Major won his fame. At that time, there was Corporal Thibodeau, United States Marine Corps. He was on the front in one battle for DC. The Order wanted to preserve the planet, and counting on the weakness of the mere apes they observed, the haughty Order troops landed and attacked. The fighting was fierce, and the humans didn't know what they were fighting. They still used rudimentary explosive projectile weapons, terrible things, and practically shocking to the Order's troops, who'd never seen such rending tearing wounds. The corporal and his squad were holding their machine gun positions in the streets of the city, fighting from holes blasted into the asphalt by falling explosives. The order's advance through the city was quick. When the call to withdraw came, 
the Bedou volunteered to cover the squad's retreat. A small, selfless, and crazy brave act that the Order found comes naturally to many humans. The men bounded rearward, one of those present recalling looking back to see Thibodeau hadn't followed. The enemy were all but on top of them, bodies of their dead stacked so high that he could scarcely shoot through them. The men called to Thibodeau through the communications devices, urging him to follow. His reply still rings in all their ears. Thibodeau bellowed back into the headset at full volume over the rapid firing of the gun. Get the feck out of here! Getting buried in brass is a good goddamn funeral for me! The men at the sending ceremony laughed and shouted grunts of approval at the quote being read aloud. Of course, it didn't need to be read for the men to know it. The whole military of Earth has long had it memorized. Thibodeau's war cry in fact became the clarion call of the resistance. By the time his position was overrun, the young corporal was so grievously wounded that he was left for dead. Another mistake of the invaders. Humans are very hard to kill. Over the next few days, he crawled on his belly to safety, moving only at night to avoid detection. Within months, he was fighting again. At the conclusion of the recitation of his deeds, the whole sending party passed his open casket to say goodbye. I, too, was ushered into the line. As I approached his body, I noticed a particular adornment. The inside of the wooden box he laid in was lined with thousands of brass containers of the now-defunct human weapons. The sergeant major lay down in his bed of brass, looked at peace. End of story. Story number two. K.I.S.S. Written by Unforeseen. The human sat there across from me in the dropship. His armor was angular and black as night. A cruel visage of a snarling demon was inscribed onto its faceplate. Narrow eyes, a sweeping, wiping tongue. Exuding malice, ready to leap, to devour me. A vision of nightmares from all the peoples of the galaxy. I stared, motionless, the tiny voice in my head urging me to run. Run from this imposing creature. The manifestation of all the scary things my primitive ancestors feared. The dropship rocked, bringing me back to reality as I bumped my fellow beside me. The human shifted, bringing my attention back to it. I saw something crude and bulky on his chest. It did not fit out of place compared to his armor and rifle. It looked old and worn. I glimpsed a logo of some kind near the center of the thing. My helmet's HUD picking it up, running it through the tack link and providing a summary of what it was. Type, handhold small arms, make Smith & Wesson Earth. Action, smokeless powder, solid kinetic projectiles. Caliber, 0.44 Magnum, 10.9 by 33 millimeter R. Energy, 2078. Capacity, 6. The dropship rocked again, snapping me out of my pondering. Why would this avatar of death carry it, an old primitive thing? Under it, a club? No, a knife. 
with something tan rapping at some uh, biological material. The hide of an animal? A kinetic weapon and a knife. Was it some keepsake from another time or another life? No, this monster would not be so sentimental. It has a reason, a purpose behind it. As if it could hear my thoughts, feel my eyes on it, smell my fear. It stirred. It moved, its head coming down to look at me. I froze, fixed in place, and the bay of the dropship became small, intimate, deadly. One word appeared in my HUD, finite and direct. What? I dared not reply, for I feared to endure the wrath of the beast. Yet I spoke, putting my trust in the tackling translator. Why, um, carry such an old crude thing? My heart stopped with my reply, my fear, my trepidation consuming me. Silence. An eternity in silence. It spoke, one thought, one word appearing in my HUD, in angry red letters. Yes! My mind halted, ceasing to think, stalled in confusion. Then the ramp alarm sounded, the red light flashing. We stood in unison, the human towering above the rest of us. The crew chief counting down. Three, two, one. The light snapped green, the ramp fell. I ran. Reality was a blur, a frenzied chaos of struggling of death over life. Suddenly, my world became pain and blackness, then light and fear. Before me was a head and scaled monstrosity, snarling and foaming, writhing in agony of existence and the pleasure of inflicting pain into the universe as compensation for its creation. I was next to pay the toll. I aimed, I fired. Nothing. It moved with purpose, with finality, invincible as the world moved around it, as if reality dared not defy its will, for nothing slowed it. Again, I fired. The radiation on my weapon did not phase it, nor slow it. I held my weapon in a stupor, in confusion, for it had never felt me before. Betrayed by it, I stood confronted with the acolyte of hell. A shadow of blackness came upon me, sudden fear following it. But not my fear, the fear of the abomination. Light, blinding light and a roar. A shadow moved forward from me and now I could see. I could see the human. Arm outreached as if pointing to will the wrath away, its hand expelling fire and light. It held the old thing, showing its singular purpose with each blast of sound and light. Five more times it sounded, and the beast screamed in pain. But it still advanced, no longer seeking to even its ledger with the universe, but with a singular being who dared defy its will. It sprang, the human flashed in a movement as it drew its blade. My world, once again, went dark as they connected. I woke, not on the field, but in a world of white and sterility. No surveyed my new surroundings, uniform in its color and hue. Except fear again in an instant, but also recognition. The human standing over me, guarding me. Its faceplate, eyeless and black with its snarling tongue demon, looked down at me. It spoke. Yes! 
Keep it simple, stupid. My mind stalled, still unable to understand as before. Was it some prayer for the demon god it worshipped? No, it could not be that. It brought its hand to its chest slowly with care. It touched the old things it kept there. It spoke again. When complexity fails, simplicity succeeds. The dropship shook. It focused me, brought me back to the task at hand. It shook again. Something stirred across from me. It was small, compact, non-blooded, full of fear. It looked up at me, its gaze falling upon the front of my armor. It spoke. Why do you carry such crude thing? I sat lost in my thoughts. I touched the leather that wrapped the hilt of my knife. A knife my ancestors would have carried while dreaming of the stars. One word came to the forefront of my mind, so clear, as if it was etched into my mind by the hand of demons sent by death. Kiss! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1006. Parasites. Written by Weirdo 5255. Staring at the creatures for a moment, Mary sighed and folded her hands behind her back. Just kill me. The creatures in the room looked at one another and then back at Mary. What? Asked the unnaturally tall and impeccably dressed creature in the center of the dark room. Mary glared back at it. I give up. How the hell are you things real, for feck's sakes? Stalking towards the closest of the creatures, one that looked like it was a psychic to fecker number two, the tall one. Mary stared it in the eyes. Fecker number two leaned back slightly, red eyes wide, it took a small step back. Raising a hand, Mary stabbed a finger into the thing's mouth. Fecking hell, kill me, groaned Mary as she glared at the pearly white fang that is inside the thing's mouth. Fecker, number two, slapped her hand away and frowned. Mary winced, the crack of at least one bone breaking audible in the small chamber. Mary took in a breath. Feck! Bringing her leg up, Mary slammed it into Fecker, number two's crotch. The creature's eyes widened and it fell to its knees, groaning in pain. Mary pulled her phone out, switching her flashlight on inspecting her hand. It was red and swollen already. Feck! Would you please stop swearing, growled the tall creature. Motherfucker, you kidnap me. You want to hold a nice conversation, knock on my fucking door like a Mormon. Don't drag me out of bed at two in the morning and expect me to be fucking happy, jerk. The tall creature shook his head. The vulgarity of this generation. Mary raised her hand and slowly extended her middle finger. The fattest and pale creature shrugged. She's uh, got enough life in her to keep even your spawn entertained, I think. Mary ignored him and stomped her right leg down on the creature still on the floor. Pain shot up her thigh. It was like kicking a cinder block. The pain was manageable, and nothing at all compared to the previous injury. Will you stop and listen to us? Asked the taller creature, extending his hands out in supplication. No! Mary whirled on her feet, considering the utter stupidity of the things already she was only mildly surprised to see that the door on the dank room was ajar. Cursing herself, Mary broke out into the run towards it. There was a small thump and the fat creature was suddenly in front of it opening. Its red eyes flashed. Stop cursing and listen to us! 
The voice was layered with some of the additional harmonic. Barry paused and swayed on her feet for a moment, opening her mouth to curse. No words came to mind, and she narrowed her eyes at the thing. Raising her hand, she was now sure had broken the wrist. Mary slammed it into her own head. Vic! She breathed as another wave of pain from both her hand and her head flooded her brain, clearing whatever suggested was. The fat creature's eyes widened and Mary glowered at the thing. We have brought you here because you have a very important role in the future, Mary Susanna Sue, said the tall man from behind her. Mary glanced back and rolled her eyes. Go to hell. You want to sell me destiny? Rent a booth in the mall next to the tarot card reader. I assure you that we are no mystics, growled the tall man. Mary huffed. You're vampires with an assault fetish. How original. Like I said, kill me. Oh, let me go. I'm not staying here. Move, fat ass. She lashed out and hit the one in front of the door. His stomach gave slightly, but he otherwise remained in place. The vampire on the ground, who she had apparently hit in one of the delicate pieces of his anatomy, slowly got to his feet and shook his head. Mary Sue, that's not what this is. Your blood, it is marked as a match for my own. When I turn you, you'll smell it as well. We are destined for one another. Mary's eyes widened and she go forth once. Wow, talk about an ego. Motherfucker, you kidnapped me. Now you love me. How the hell does that line up? The creature winced. We need to get you away from your home. Another pack was moving through. Someone else might have matched with you. They would not have been so courteous. Taking and biting you in your sleep. That's assuming they just didn't simply drain you. So, instead of vagrant vampires, I get high-class respect for ones. I feel so fecking lucky. Mary sighed and put a good hand on her hip. Convince me, what the hell is the advantage of being a vampire? The tall creature furrowed its brow. Immortality, invulnerability, endless youth, every sense is enhanced and you no longer have to worry. The only thing you need is blood. If you have conniptions about killing humans, you can take only what you need. Mary rolled her eyes. So considerate. What about the unadvertised benefits? Sunlight, wooden sticks, garlic, silver bullets, all that werewolf thing. The tall one's mouth thinned and feckered too, hissed. Fecking hell. Those are real too, growled Mary. Do not mention them again, hissed Fecker too. Answer the questions. The tall one glanced at Fecker too and nodded. Sunlight is painful, but not fatal. Wooden sticks hurt and garlic smells bad. And no bullet is lethal. So, how would I kill one of you? Asked Mary. Fekatu frowned. That is not something you need to worry about. Oh, tell me anyway. Kill me or let me go. Fekatu shifted awkwardly. Enough blood fonts trauma to do it. Or fire in enough of a concentration is lethal. Mary nodded. So modern weapons are still lethal, and I have to hunt down and kill people to feed myself instead of going to the corner store. This seems so convenient. Um, what happens if I don't drink blood? The tall man was frowning now. You cannot resist the compulsion to do so. I said bullets would not affect you. No weapon that man has created has ever been effective at killing us. 
How many of you feckers actually live in modern war zones? Very spat. The tall one raised an eyebrow. Humans in wartime are more difficult to hunt. The dull senses are on high alert. The weapons are painful, but not permanently damaging. It's easier to hunt in nations like this, where the populace is docile. What about Inuk? Fekker too blinked. We strive to not be noticed enough for humans to take such drastic measures. A warthog, a waiter, Mary paused and looked at the fat one. How old are you idiots? The fat one puffed out its chest. I am old enough to have watched Rome fall. Mary put her good hand on her face. So you've been around for 2,000 years. Why the hell haven't you jerks taken over the world? Does being a vampire make you an imbecile? We are creatures without souls, aberrations of nature. For as long as we have existed, we have kept ourselves in check. It is not our place to rule the humans, said the tall one. You're cowards, you mean. His face hardened, and he glanced at Fekker too. You are sure her blood calls to you? Mary stepped forward. You've had an advantage for 2,000 fecking years. You'd rather just sit back and enjoy the fruits of your labor. You really are parasites, sir. Humans die in droves against one another. We had you to fight off. We would have united and killed you in an instant. Nowadays, give a pissed-off 19-year-old kid a gun, and I bet he'd beat you. Mary stalked forwards. So, last question. What happens if I shoot off your schlong? You grow that back. Becker, too, looked taken aback for a moment. Well, uh, no, um, <clears throat> you can reattach the limb that is chopped off. Have any of you looked at a biology under a microscope? If you can do that, then you have nerve regenerative properties, unless you're some deep voodoo magic. The tall man drew himself up. The sciences of man are little use to us. The medical sciences in particular. We do not get sick, we do not die. Mary reached down and pulled her pants leg up. So I get to have a missing foot for eternity? No thanks. The three creatures looked at the mechanical limb as she flexed the back metal carbon composite prosthetic. What happened to you? asked Vekatu. Mary looked at him. I was a pilot. I fought in the war. I crashed. I learned exactly what the inside of my leg looked like when I had to hack myself free. Morphine doesn't help when the pain is in your fecking bones. So excuse me if I don't feel threatened by parasitic fecks who are so assured of their superiority that don't even know how to jam a cell phone. Even the dumbest fecks in the middle of the East would have taken radios when they kidnapped someone. The two in front blinked. Cell phone? asked Beckett too. Mary rolled her eyes and reached around and pulled a phone out. A radio? You feckers here yet? asked Mary. You called us in the middle of the night, Major. It's just me and Hank. The three parasites stared at the phone, and Fekker too nodded. No wires? Mary dropped the device and, spinning on her remaining natural foot, slammed her prosthetic into the fat creature's head. He stumbled to the side slightly, and Mary leapt over him. She cursed as the prosthetic locked in place, forcing her to run like a drunken pirate up the stairs. The things had dragged her into a basement of some old house in the middle of nowhere, with nothing but a field around it. Mary immediately went diagonally away from the top of the stairs. Mary! shouted Fekker number two as he ran up after her. 
A loud report of the M107 anti-material rifle firing echoed over the field, and Mary winced. You faggers hit me and I'll kill you, shouted Mary into the darkness. Mary heard a groan behind her, but didn't look back as she tripped and fell flat on her face. The prosthetic was not built to be slammed into anything as hard as it had been, and was beyond quick reset. Not to mention that she had unseated the thing from her stump, and it was digging into the sensitive flesh. Motherfucking sparkly rear vampires! Mary growled as she crawled through the dirt and mud of the surrounding field. Headlights flashed on the familiar roar of Reggie's truck was for once a welcome sound to Mary. Continuing to crawl, she had to trust that the two could see her on the ground. The truck continued to barrel towards her, and Mary yelped, rolling to the side as it nearly hit her. You feckers! shouted Mary as the truck slid to a halt. Standing up in the bed of the truck, M107 planted on the roof, Hank didn't turn around to look at her, but nonetheless grinned. Just making sure you're awake, Major. Hopping up on one foot, Mary pulled herself onto the back of the truck as Hank fired again. Digging around in the bed of the thing, Mary picked up the first assault rifle she found, ignoring the handguns that were sliding around the back. Raising the P90 and throwing herself up beside Reggie, Mary accidentally shoved her knee into the back of the cabin window, showering Hank with glass. Motherfucker, I just replaced that, shouted Hank as he floored the accelerator and sped towards the form that was slowly staggering to its feet in the field. Mary ignored him and opened fire. The automatic fire of the military weapon was nothing compared to that of the plane that she'd once flown, but it was nonetheless satisfying. At such close range, all but a few of the fifty rounds slammed into the parasite's chest. You bring explosives? Mary asked. Hank raised a bottle. A little harder to swipe on short notice. Yet you managed an anti-material rifle. Hank let the length of cloth stuffed into the bottle and unceremoniously tossed it onto the thing. The three didn't watch as the creature burst into frames. Focus already moving towards the stairs that Mary had run out only moments before. The fat one stuck its head up, and before Mary could even register that her head was gone and a significant portion of the concrete behind him as well. Ow! complained Mary as her ears rang. Dropping the P-90, Mary lifted the Spaz-12 shotgun up. Even on her best day, the kick from the weapon was a little too much to handle comfortably for a smaller frame, and without a prosthetic, it was positively stupid. Mary was pissed though. Hank killed the engine and jumped out of his truck, seating the M-16 to his shoulder. Reggie dropped an anti-material rifle, raising his own M16, dropped to the ground before his partner. Both quickly moved forwards to stand at the entrance of the stairs. Dropping to the ground, falling onto her shoulder, Mary winced as a broken wrist throbbed. You good, Mary? asked Hank, his eyes still locked forwards. I just broke that leg in. Burn them. Idiot told me it was the best way to kill them. Maybe they were lying? asked Reggie. I don't think these feckers even have the concept of tactics. Reggie shrugged and pulled out the lighter, leaned down next to the fat one's corpse and lit the clothes on fire. The human corpse would have perhaps smoldered, if anything. The parasite's flesh caught on fire and within moments the entire thing was ablaze. Stop! shouted the tall one. Slowly, the creature moved out of the basement, his hands up, his red eyes wide. Down on your knees! shouted Reggie. 
Mary hobbled forwards between the two men, watching as the thing slowly knelt. Major, asked Hank, as much as I'd love to kill him, I think the airgates will be able to learn some things from him. You're going to be the one to call the general and tell him what the hell happened here? I tried to explain, and I'm going to be committed. You already need to be committed, growled Mary as she reached into the man's pocket and pulled out his cell phone. Mary paused and looked down at the thing. The tall man was glaring up at her, a mix of fear and pain on his face. You've been a parasite long enough. It's time to earn your keep. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1007. Story number one. Heirs of Humanity, written by Clock Tower Echoes. The great Unmaker had come for humanity. From beyond the stars, it shattered the heavens and swept across the globe like a specter of death. It was not an invasion or a war that destroyed nations and sided cities, but an alien plague unlike any before it. Millions died on the first day, and hundreds of thousands soon followed daily. Those who survived found that they were no better off than dead, as their bodies failed, organs failed, brains shut down, and worst of all, the human genome was unraveled at a rapid pace causing cancer and infertility amongst the surviving population. The world had come to a dreadful realization. Humanity was going extinct. Nothing could cure the Unmaker Plague, its very existence baffling the most brilliant minds, as those who weren't immediately killed were doomed to suffer a painful existence until their bodies shut down completely. Little did they know, but the Unmaker Plague was a thing feared the galaxy over, capable of wiping out entire civilizations, from Stone Age tribes to Space Age nations. A wave of existential horror washed over Earth as people came to realize that all of their history, their culture, and knowledge would be forever forgotten. They would die on their home planet, never venturing into the stars and settling exotic worlds like they had once promised their children. But humanity refused to go quietly into the long night. They fought against the looming extinction with all their might, but the creations would only prolong their lives and never save them. Out of options, it was decided that if humanity could not survive, then at least their legacy could. And so was born Project Gemini. An attempt to create a successor to humans. All of the survivors lived on borrowed time, gave themselves to a singular purpose. A final creation of the greatest wonder humans had ever and would ever make. Thousands of years of collected knowledge and technology poured into the largest project in human history. Workers died where they stood in mines and fields, Engineers coughed blood and viscera under the blueprints, and scholars struggling to remember crucial information as their minds degraded. But everyone kept going. Each person who died only fueled the fanatical drive of the others before doom claimed them as well. And then finally, humanity had given birth to twins. One was of flesh and blood, born of the same primordial earth that humans arose from, and distant relatives. The primates were as diverse as humans were, uplifted and given the spark of sentience that Homo sapiens found so many millennia ago. 
Chimpanzees, apes, gorillas, and monkeys were all uplifted to equals with the human cousins, and given the historical records and cultural legacy of 10,000 generations before them. The other was of metal and code, born of the technology their makers once hoped to use to travel to the stars, and had used to sustain themselves as the unmaker plague washed through them. Humans called them androids, and gave them the gift of free will to make them as human, and alive as they were in their haste. Humanity kept them looking like robotic drones instead of mirrors of their creators. To them was given the library of knowledge and information, gathered over many millions of lifetimes, so that they could remember all of humanity's creations and innovations, even if humans could no longer. The dwindling humans could foresee the primates and the androids, echoes of their own divided past, so they told their two children about unity and cooperation, about how in their thousands of years of existence, it was only when humanity was dying that it fully come together to achieve their greatest work. Both primates and androids would live side by side and help each other in equal union. Neither considered firstborn of mankind, but both the proudest children of a dying parent. And when the last human finally passed, surrounded by both androids and primates, the earth itself mourned their passing. When the two ventured into space and encountered other sentient life, they shocked the galactic community. Not only were they synthetic and inorganic life forms living together in unity, but that Earth had somehow survived the Unmaker Plague, a feat thought impossible. While the humans did indeed fall to the plague that acclaimed many civilizations before it, humanity lived on through the primates and androids. Some decreed the actions of the humans as playing God, but such voices were shut down by the children of humans who simply said, Then our gods are much more real and much more benevolent than yours. Primates have no qualms about leaving their children with an android caretaker, and both feel safer around each other than with other organic or synthetic life forms, respectively. An android goes to see a primate mechanic as regularly as a primate would go see an android doctor. There are even cases of marriage between the two. Together, they have spread across dozens of worlds and systems, united in their greatest triumphs and greatest failures. They have made wondrous inventions humans could only dream of and faced trials that no human dared think of. In war and peace... Their union has prospered, their power and prestige rivaling that of a species who has spent centuries amongst the stars. Humans never made it to the stars, but the banner of old Earth can be found the galaxy over, emblazoned on battle standards and painted on sides of cargo containers. Humans could never give the future they promised to their children, but their children gave them the future that they hoped to grant them. With the lessons learned from the creators and uplifters, both the androids and primates carry the light of humanity into the darkest of voids, believing that somewhere, beyond the veil, humanity smiles proudly at what they have accomplished as heirs of humanity.
End of story. Story number two. Morning Coffee, written by Arclight Magus. I didn't understand why humans kept such an odd schedule. Certainly I had read the human guide, which detailed their resting periods originating from their world, as well as a number of their rituals involving resting periods. But to simply put it, Yitz simply didn't understand. When Yitz's form required rest, Yitz simply locked into position and rested. It was only in the time translation approximation 12 Earth weeks that Yitz came to respect the human resting ritual and the morning coffee the human had brought with them. It was a day of transit like many before it. Yitz, a translation approximation senior engineer, was conducting a post-jump inspection of the engines when the alarms began to sound. Pirates, of course it was pirates. Yitz knew of the ship's cargo, but typically gave it no thought. The ship's cargo was not Yitz's concern. That was Rutupsk's concern. Doing as Yitz's was raised to do, Yitz's paused in task and moved into a non-threatening posture. This would go as it always does. The pirates were bored. Hurt any being not in a non-threatening posture, take as much cargo as possible before assistance can arrive, and then leave. Much like the human taxes, Yitz believed them to be called. And it was in that moment that Yitz remembered the human, glandular member of the Diocious physiognomy by the namesake Victoria, was in her resting period, and this would be the first pirate experience for the human. But Yitz was uncertain of what to do. If Yitz left the non-threatening posture, Yitz would be liable to be hurt or perhaps killed, particularly with the predators like the pirates who commonly prowled this portion of space. Yitz's answer came soon enough. Yitz heard more than saw the pirates seeming to be running. They were making sounds of fear, as strange as a sound as Yitz could imagine. And then... Hitz heard the quiet growl and the slow, shuffling fleet slowly approaching Hitz. Taking a chance, Hitz adjusted Hitz's eyes. Human Victoria was in front of Hitz, appearing to have been sprayed with some pirate blood in her resting ritual clothes. She was yawning. Seems like we got some unwelcome guests, Hitz, Victoria indicated, noting Hitz's posture. Victoria, you are not in a non-threatening posture. Query. Did the pirates not hurt Victoria? Yitz managed, still puzzling over the pirate blood adorning human Victoria's resting ritual clothes. No, but they did something worse. They woke me up with our coffee, Victoria stated, a predatory look filling her features. Query, will Victoria hurt Yitz before coffee now? Yitz asked, ready to return to a non-threatening posture. Nope, but you can see about making some while I get rid of these unwelcome guests. And remember, I'm a monster before I've had my coffee. Victoria grinned and shuffled off down the corridor. Yitz set about the work of making the human coffee. Yitz didn't know if the human Victoria was being facetious, but Yitz didn't want to find out. Yitz heard distant clanking, indicating the pirate ship had separated from the ship. Human Victoria would likely be returning now. Yitz found the large vial that human Victoria used to coffee and filled it. By the time Yitz turned around to look down the corridor, human Victoria was in front of Yitz, reaching for the vial. Gimme, Victoria said, her resting ritual clothes appearing to be a bit more coated in pirate blood than earlier. 
End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1008. One Mile Away, written by Betty Foster. Vicious winds whip the dusty landscape into a frenzy. Rocks howl and the sparse grasses whistle, voicing their distress, but to no avail. It was one of the more bitter features of Dalinut, a planet known for its inhospitable disposition. Not that it mattered much. Kalinium formed in mass in the hollows and flats of the land, which meant that it would be settled regardless of weather. The precious mineral was worth a few months of discomfort to the worker that collected it. It was worth even more to the multitude of private companies that vied for a monopoly on the planet and the rights to brute mining operations. So far, though, none had succeeded, and the planet remained in the horrifying limber that was public domain, free for every settler with the capital and the guts to make landfall. It didn't often last long. Dry, unforgiving, and dismal shade of brown, Delinut was in a blot on the otherwise fair reputation of livable planets. It passed the settling standards just barely. The listing in the registry for planets available to be settled in was as follows. Delinut, high effort, labor intensive, mortal risk, not recommended. Horizontal hail, the size of teeth pelted everything from the ground to a height of 10 meters. Gravity fluctuated constantly due to the unrest in the planet's core and warping magnetic fields. Wind whisked away moisture to be deposited in sinkholes that filled in with muck and stone, only to be burst years later from gas buildup. There were no clouds. There was no thriving ecosystem. There was only the red giant floating angrily in the sky, set on burning the planet to a crisp, and it would one day succeed. Deep in the flats walked a figure, swathed in black and khaki, wrapped it from head to foot. The figure was humanoid and walked with a strange gait that could come from anything from a botched surgery to a rock in its shoe. It took a pulting hail in stride, making no sound, but the constant trudge of boot on coarse sand. Above the flats sat a small dwelling, or, to be more precise, the entry to a dwelling. It was a wide and thick platform of Crete set into the rock some twenty meters long and shaped like a landing pad. Markings lay on it for measurements in the twisting letters, and the very center of it bore of wear of movement. Inside, Enneth studied the figure from the beaten lenses of the weather cameras set about the perimeter of her home. She was a Venetti, a tall and thin-limbed being from one of the many gas clusters that scattered the galaxy. Her birth, as with most Venetti, had been a sad affair. Sad in that another number would be added to the list of the hungry of their kind. Venetti, however, would not settle in and be sad with the rest of them. Her optimism had led her to take chances where they around her did not. And after a few years of hunger and calculated risk, Enneth had obtained a ship and a settler's permit. She didn't want to be rich, she just didn't want to be hungry. The figure came closer, and she studied it carefully. It was a human, of that she was sure. 
None of the other settlers were dumb or desperate enough to come out during a squall like this after the solar flare that had wiped out all radio communications. A single misstep would quickly follow by death of exposure or dehydration, whichever came first. Most weren't able to get back up after falling on this planet. Humans, though, always seemed to stand back up. The figure came to the center of a pad. The Edith pulled the handle to lower it. Whether they were friendly or not would be determined, but there was a single rule of hospitality on this planet. Talk inside. Cleaning operations buzzed and cleared her entryway, and the figure stepped inside. Edith pulled away from her command module and met it within the main quarters, which was small and sparse indeed. Edith stood opposite the bulky figure. She only had two pairs of clothing, what she now wore, and a suit for collecting galenium. Neither were in good shape. Her deep blue limbs had horizontal yellow stripes on the upper portions, and their thinness of her body must have been apparent. The Nettie were already thin to begin with, but their bodies reacted similarly to humans in the absence of nutrition. Her ribs were readily apparent, even through her clothes. The humid smoke, muffled by the multiple layers of clothing that wrapped around it. Is your radio down? She paused. Had the human not been aware of the flare? Yes, it's down. The flare fried my safe stop, and I ran out of extras two weeks ago. Do you need supplies? Yes. What kind? Aneth didn't hesitate. Withholding information in this sort of situation would be stupid. Food. I've been subsisting on a quarter rations for two weeks now. I only have a few days left. The human reached into the depths of its garment and pulled out a lump of dehydrated nutrients the size of a brick and handed it to her. And it took it. It was heavy. Absurdly heavy. How had the human carried this for so far? That should keep you going for another week until I get back. How's your water supply? It's holding. Good. Here. Yeah. The figure pulled something else from the depths of his coat and held it out to her. It sat shiny with the light of deliverance. The human's ungloved hand. She pulled the spherical device with its two grounding points from the human's palm while studying its fingers, trying to discern if it was male or female. She couldn't tell, didn't know enough about their physiology. Did both males and females have nails? Or were they sexually dimorphic? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anything else? No, I, I don't think so. The human turned around and trudged back out to the entryway. Anna set down the brick of nutrients and stumbled past her single couch to the human. Wait! What? The next unit is 20 miles away. I need to get going. How did you keep your safe stops from frying? Why are you out here? You could get hurt. Faraday Cage. You should have one, too. Send me back up, please. I'll be back in a week with more food. She held the entry portal open, insistent. You could get hurt. One slip. I'm aware. Send me up. Why are you doing this? The figure paused, then started footing his gloves back on. My neighbor died. Water pump busted. Radio out. No backups and too scared to leave without a radio. Found him a week after the fact. All shriveled up beside the door. The human's voice lowered. 
A mile away. One damned mile. I could have checked in eight different times. But I didn't. There was a moment of silence. Ennis stepped back from the entryway. Has, um, anyone else? No, you're the closest to running out of food, but not by much. I'll be back. Aneth allowed the door to close and pushed the handle to raise the platform. Howling winds assaulted the platform anew, but the figure stood still like one of the scarred rock formations until it came level with the rest of the pad. Then the human started walking, away from where it had come, down onto the flats. Aneth watched the figure go. She saw the wind formation form, but had no way to warn the human. She cursed herself for not immediately replacing the same stop as a dust devil filled with rocks the size of fists barreled over the human and knocked it to the ground. She watched, helpless, as the form was pelted with stones until the dust devil whirled onward and dissipated. There was nothing but the constant scrabble of scree and gravel for a few minutes as Delanet carried on its harsh election. Edna sat, eyes glued to the low-quality screens. Unable to accept that the dead figure on the ground was the human that had just saved her. It was good that she hadn't accepted it, because it wasn't true. First were the arms, then the legs, raising the human to four points above the ground. The wind howled with rage and flung dirt and stone and sand, but still the human moved. Then one of the legs came up, the right one, and with a heave, the human stood, brushed itself off, placed its hands in its pockets, and continued the dreary trudge into the wasteland, spotted by riches. Aneth left the screen when she could no longer make out the human's form. She allowed herself to eat her first full meal in weeks, then carefully replaced the safe stop, ran diagnostics, and activated a radio. As in the aftermath of most soda flares, the local community was in disarray but it wasn't nearly as bad as it had been on previous occasions. Anna signed in and marked herself safe. The local community wasn't massive, maybe some 70 or so units, but more than half of them were back online. The recovery rate was never that high, or so quick, so she checked the local map. There, in a spiraling connect-the-dots pattern, where the settlers marked safe and back online by date and time. Some had been fine, but many were reporting their recovery with notes regarding a human visitor. Aneth added to the notes, then sat back in her chair. She needed to find out what a Faraday cage was and, if possible, get the personal line of the human so that she could thank it promptly. Outside, the great red sun beat down with a fury and the sparse, tough shrubs withered it processed. Anything that grew bent in the direction of the wound. If... It was constant. If it wasn't, the plants warped and twisted, but still made their way upwards. The air was thick with dust, the ground chaotic in swirls and undulating patterns of movement. Spherical stones reached up to the knee, ground their way slowly across the landscape, this way and that, meandering on their path towards erosion. And, trudging stoically through the dismal brown of the Colonium Flats, was a tightly wrapped black and cocky figure of a human. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1009.
They Stand Alone, written by Digital 332006. Samuel Haynes paced the small room back and forth, quite anxious about what was to come. They were nice enough to have granted him a few hours to rest and compose himself, he thought. It had been quite an ordeal, and he'd never forget the last 72 hours. What had been a routine mission culminated into the first contact with alien life. Double-sided retractable drawers opened on the other side of the room. A large purple-hued alien with tentacles instead of legs gently shuffled in his direction. The creature reminded him slightly of an aquatic life from back on Earth, like some kind of giant calamari. It was accompanied by another alien, much smaller and flying alongside it. I trust you've rested well enough, it inquired in a monotonous tone. Samuel was glad that he could understand it so well and was rather impressed with the technology that allowed this conversation to occur. It had frightened him quite so when they had first shown him the syringe and motioned to give him a shot. After saving him from being stranded in space, however, he had decided to trust them and let them do as they would. Miraculously, after the procedure, he could fully understand everything any of the aliens were saying. They had explained that the tiny nanites programmed to help with communication were behind this. The alien before him was the one that he'd seen before. Very soon after they had saved him and brought him aboard their ship, he felt ashamed about how he reacted by seeing dozens of different alien species was quite alarming. Seeing his state, they'd left the room he was in and let him enter a single other alien, Picacho. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, Diplomat Picacho. Um, where are we now? Samuel inquired. We have docked at the nearest starbase in the Othena sector. Do not worry, we will return you home after we've resupplied. We do, however, have many questions if you'd like to grant us permission. He also had many of his own to ask and acquiesced to their request. The diplomat gestured to him to follow and returned around, leaving the smaller room to join a larger one with a large table. Seated at the table were an array of alien species, all more foreign than the other. Samuel could, however, with some liberties taken, find some resemblance to some creatures from Earth in almost all of them. The crescent table lay before him, a single chair unused and of seemingly appropriate size for him. Twelve alien species were present. Two chairs, however, were empty. Seated in the middle was the strangest thing Samuel had ever seen, a bright orange square that seemed to be levitating. It addressed him. Please make yourself comfortable. Think not of this formal event. This is simply to get to know you. Samuel sat down, unsure of how to react with so many eyes on him. As Samuel got comfortable, the orange creature resumed speaking, Malcolm, I am identified as Toka. Does your species also use personal identifiers? We do. My name is Samuel Gaines. Ah, wonderful. I knew we'd have some things in common. We're Tavarians, we aren't very spiritual, but uh, even I find it amazing coincidence, if not a twist of fate, that our delegation would find you just as we were heading to a summit. I'm grateful that you did. If not for you, I would have slowly perished up in space. Our pleasure. It is always exciting to meet new species. 
Can you tell us more about your home and yourselves? We searched our records and found nothing. Oh. Well, um, I come from Earth. That's how we named our planet. We have vast oceans and forests. Some areas also have snow and ice, while others can be much warmer, such as deserts or tropical areas. That sounds like an interesting planet, if not difficult to survive. How many citizens does Earth have? Well, we're very good at adapting, that's for sure. And last estimate, uh, I think we're up to 9.4 billion. Astounding! To live in balance with such a population, how many of these citizens are humans like you? What? 9.4 billion, like I said. Is the translator perhaps malfunctioning? Another alien seated at the table replied. It has never tested with this species. Perhaps it'll need some time for adjustments. I'll rephrase then. How many different species are on Earth? Oh, I get what you mean now. Uh, we have tons of animals. Our planet isn't barren or anything. There's elephants, lions, birds, fish. Samuel was abruptly interrupted by Toko. Animals? Class 2 sentient life, you mean? We mean at least class 3 sentient life. The kind that would make up your society. Do you not have any other life forms that make up your population? Around the table, the other aliens became slightly disconcerted, looking at their peers for insight. No, I mean we have pets, but they merely coexist with us. Shocked, alien faces greeted Samuel's reply. The aliens whispered to each other, clearly panicked by his revelation. Toka paused for a moment before replying, I see, um, how tragic indeed. Were they all killed in a large war in your past, where you had to fight for domination of your planet, or perhaps a disease that affected only their biology? Um, no, we've always been alone. Well, not anymore, which is why this is such huge news that I can't wait to share. All around the table, the aliens' expressions range from disgust to disbelief. Samuel began thinking he was telling them the sky was green. This is, uh... Unprecedented. How could you get so far alone? Your bodies are not specialized for mining. How did you remove metals from the earth in order to create tools and fashion machines to further those endeavors without a species like the Kronk and their princes? Or food, for that matter. How could you feed nine billion mouths without the help of species like the Volta, who personalize plants? It goes against everything we've ever learned. It's the bonds that we create with our fellow Xenos that allows us to reach for the stars. Samuel stared blankly, quite perplexed at the unsure how to reply. Fortunately, he didn't need to as Picacho stood up and slid towards him. I am sorry, Samuel, but could you give us a moment? We need to discuss this amongst ourselves. Samuel panicked a bit. He was in beyond his means. Discuss? What's the matter? I thought this was just an informal meeting. I can't properly represent the whole human race. Indeed, it was supposed to be informal. Just getting to know more about you while we prepare for official first contact and how to add your planet to the galactic community. But this is never something that we have anticipated. You see, every species we've ever met has had at least two other Class Three sentient species that they also lived alongside on the home planet. It's that teamwork that makes possible the foundation of the galactic community. Every other species in the universe has had to work with others and sometimes work very hard to reconcile. Sure, 
There have been conflicts, but it has always been dealt with for the greater good, considering that the alternative, which meant the annihilation of one species, would also mean the other's demise, or at the very least, a loss of supremacy. Another alien that had been seated at the table came down to further add to Picacho's words. We're unsure how to think of humans, who have never had these experiences. How would they get along with other species? You'll seem so foreign to them. Most the others have lived alongside other species for ages. Samuel let himself be escorted out of the room, his head sullen, feeling like he disappointed all of humanity. We need to do something about them. They pose a very tangible threat to the stability of the galaxy. How can we stop them? It's not like the other times where they had needed our help to achieve spaceflight. They've already reached that point. Yes, I know. There'll have to be war. Shouting erupted amongst the diplomats. Their opinions split about the matter until a loud booming sound drew their attention and calmed them down. All eyes, and in some cases other appendages, turned towards the source of the sound. A large, rocky alien. A lithoid. Aganiths were the four founding species that were the first to achieve spaceflight as a planet. Many of you have forgotten. I am now 1,784 cycles old, and I remember the early days when we were alone. That feeling of helplessness when we hit a dead end and couldn't progress anymore. Do you remember it? I think not. It was a difficult time. Before we learned to work together. In the end, we had to get help and work with other species of our home world to overcome the next hurdle. The rock being creaked, its body adjusting itself as it turned around to look towards the door Samuel had exited. The humans... They have never hit that insurmountable wall. Everything has been possible for them. Our usual approach of helping species if they will be amendable is irrelevant in this scenario. How strong must their wills be, their spirits, that they have never known defeat the way we have? It does not make them superior. But the whole mindset is very different from ours. It would be unwise and foolish to oppose them. These words made the others think long and hard, silence overcoming every diplomat. Tokar broke that silence after a few minutes had passed. I agree. We should give them that chance. They seem friendly enough. Get Samuel back in here. We'll be going to make first contact with Earth. Perhaps this time, it'll be them who impart knowledge to us. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.